With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A century before George Floyd was killed, Minnesota's progressive image suffered another stain. Next Monday marks 100 years since the lynchings of three black circus workers at the hands of an angry mob in Duluth. Tonight, Boyd Hooper explores the lessons of that ugly event still being learned. And we want to warn you, this story contains a graphic image of the lynching. We are including it for historical accuracy and our belief that racism needs to be confronted, not covered up. For those who feign surprise that Minnesota could be capable of a George Floyd moment, don't. It's in our DNA, dating back exactly a century to Duluth. 100 years ago next Monday, an angry mob broke into the city jail, dragging out three black men accused with flimsy evidence of raping a white woman. On a streetlight pole, the mob lynched all three. It's like living, uh, living history over and over again. Bill Green, Augsburg professor and former Minneapolis superintendent of schools. So there's a lot of denial that, that, that circle. And that, to me, seems to be a, a constant thread in how Minnesotans looked at race relations, I mean, since the 19th century. I can breathe. Yet no one can deny the images. In 2020, the knee on George Floyd's neck. And in 1920, the lynching. Close your eyes now if you don't want to see it. But Bill Green thinks we should all look at this picture once sold as postcards focusing not just on the black men who were lynched, but on the white men posing for the photo with them. I'm more impacted by the smiles on the faces of the men who seem proud of their handiwork. It's almost as if they were sportsmen. You know, they had gone off and, and fished, and this is their catch. It's that sense of, 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 uh, of dehumanization that's powerful and, and very scary to see. They just didn't talk about it. Don Clariette is a descendant of one of the men who was lynched, something he learned by chance as an adult. Why don't you think anyone talked about it in your family? Shame, uh, horribleness of it. I was really ashamed. I was very embarrassed. Warren Reed was tracing his family's genealogy when he learned his great-grandfather was a leader of the lynching mob. He was apparently driving around uh, Duluth picking up people and loading them on the back of his truck and stopped by the hardware store to get the rope that was used in the lynchings. His family never spoke of it either. Looking at our history is the only way that we, we, we can look at ourselves uh, in a clear way. Without that history, we live with illusions. We live with, with, with cultural lies. We live in the ignorance that, that nothing is wrong. What's that man? Till, in a different way, it happens again. As much as we'd like to think we've come so far since 100 years ago, we really haven't. We can do better. We, we have to get beyond this. Don and Warren have made peace with their shared connection. They are friends now who together paid homage at the memorial in Duluth where Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, and Isaac McGee 
have been given back some of the dignity taken from them 100 years ago. Are we in a better place? I do get a sense that people are trying to make sense of this. I can't breathe! I've seen it on the streets. I've seen people trying to find the language to explain things that they've never really had to talk about. 1920 and now 2020. Yet still asking, when will it end? What's the only way that society can move forward when it takes a reckoning of its past? This is sort of an opportunity for us to prove ourselves. Boyd Hooper. Carol 11 News, Minneapolis. Warren Reed's great-grandfather and two other members of the mob spent time in prison, not for the lynching, but for inciting a riot. Despite a lack of evidence, seven more black circus workers were indicted for rape. Only one of them, Max Mason, was convicted. He spent four years in prison. Tomorrow, the state pardons board will consider granting Mason a posthumous pardon the first in Minnesota history. The Minnesota Historical Society is marking the 100th anniversary of the lynching with some opportunities for additional learning. You'll find this link on our website. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. All you find, only black people in Minnesota is Prince and Kirby Puckett. The great Chris Rock. Ah, ah counter-racist theorist of our times. Ah, the greatest. The cows, Gusty Renegade, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy racism with other non-white people, victims of racism. Today's date, Tuesday, January 16, 2024. So I have been told we can actually start even matter of fact two things one make sure we get the names in Isaac McGee Elias Clayton Elmer Jackson victims of white supremacy privileged black males two current temperature in Seattle Washington 35 degrees for context that is downright balmy I think this is the first time in mm, at least a good four or five days that it has been above freezing and there's still quite a bit of ice all out and about uh, for people who've never been to the Pacific Northwest. Wow, this is rather unusual. I think when I saw all of this cold weather was headed our way last week, they said on the news that, wow, it's about to be as cold as it's been in Seattle in about 30 years. Whew. They were not kidding. So within all of that, it has been a little bit dangerous, quite cold. I'm no fan of the frigid temperatures, as I've said for a long time. We are not built for this sort of weather here. So total preface for the broadcast, Gusty soldiering through all of the cold weather. Uh, listener supported counter racist radio invest for hot chocolate blankets uh, hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com listener supported counter racist radio you'll see the paypal button top right corner links below for cash app venmo and paypal much obliged for our investors 15 years uninterrupted Part two, our guest for this evening's broadcast, also in the Pacific Northwest, 
suffered burst pipes, as did many residents in these parts. Again, we are just not built for cold weather or really hot weather. Either way, he is soldiering through with us, notwithstanding, mopped things up, got to a quiet area, ready to roll to address racism. What can we say? All that notwithstanding, I found out about our guest for today's broadcast a few, I was going to say months back, contraire, mon frere, not that much time has passed. A few weeks passed and we had Dr. Jeff Ward as a guest on the program and we talked about one of my favorite subjects, racist jokes. We talked about his report. We talked about many things, but one report from insult to estrangement and injury, the violence of racist police jokes. Within that report, they had a number of references, one of them to the book we're discussing today, that book, The Lyncher in Me, A Search for Redemption in the Face of History. I am sure there were some racist jokes told en route to the 1920 Duluth, Minnesota lynching of Isaac McGee, Elias Clayton, and Elmer Jackson, privileged black males, potential rapists. Uh, Within the audio that you heard at the beginning, of course we did hear Chris Rock, but before that, they now have a memorial. Man, if aliens ever come down here, and just snoop around, especially if they come after we have been like eradicated, we've clogged plastic and everything up everywhere, so it's no more people. And they just come and hang out. Be like, what? Man, they have got thousands of memorials for something that they call a lynching. What do you think that was? Why do they have so many monuments to these lynching things? We got to do some research. What is this? lynching because they got these memorials all over the continent anyway beyond all of that now they have another one in Minnesota at the spot where this took place they had a big ceremony for it Uh, I even thought it was interesting and talking about the other black males who worked at the circus who got convicted for rape which the book suggests may not have even happened like that is vicious white supremacy double dipping you get the lynching of three black males and you get a conviction of my goodness anyway fascinating information in the text even though there are other books uh, written about the lynching history books specifically I'd say this book is more of kind of a family excavation at least in my view as a reader will be a hoot to talk with the author kind of see what was his purpose for writing this here book what did he learn uh joining us live from the pacific northwest our guest warren reed mr reed are you with us sir i am here thank you awesome thank you so much for sharing a bit of your frosty tuesday evening with us uh for our listeners uh, might not be familiar with uh the lyncher in me or the work that you do uh anything that you would like to share briefly with our listening audience just about the work that you do and who you are um yeah well i would say that um first of all the book came out in 2008 so it's been 
it's been a little bit of a journey even since the release of the book and um, some additional things that I've been able to do after after the publication. But I, I'm a retired educator. Um, I was an elementary school teacher for a lot of years, and then I was a high school assistant principal. Um, and so I'm just kind of, uh, you know, still kind of exploring the retired life. And when it doesn't involve ceilings collapsing with uh, sprays of water everywhere, um, I, uh, I'm, you know, looking to kind of travel around the U.S. I haven't really seen a lot of the U.S. Um, so uh, that's kind of my goal uh, once once the weather warms up a bit. Wacky. All righty. Uh, well, here's some of the updates of what's happened uh, since the book was published and all that good stuff. Uh, let's see, for listener, or I guess one, if you want to, you can go to the website, get more information about Mr. Reed, the website warren-reed, R-E-A-D.com, warren-reed, R-E-A-D.com. Uh, for listeners who have not seen you, you are classified as a white man. Is that accurate? Yes. Great. Uh, let's see. We always start our broadcasts uh, with just getting a definition uh, down racism. That term, many people use it, but they don't at least even give a definition. This broadcast, I use the term racism and the term white supremacy as synonyms. I use the same definition for both terms. That definition, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? Yeah, you know, I would agree with that. And I, uh, um, you know, I think that we see examples of that every day, um, whether people are um, consciously or, or unconsciously acting uh, in a white supremacist way. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, let's see. There is a non-white writer like yourself, non-white writer like yourself, writes about racism. Uh, I've been asking our white guests for some years now, in a piece directly about racism, he said, or he wrote, uh, white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. And I've been focusing on the first portion of the sentence. Uh, white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism. I've been asking our white guests, uh, you have white family members, white friends, you're around white people, you study and write about racism in white people. Just from your, in your view, do you think that a significant number of people classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism? Do you think that's true, Mr. Reed? Um, I, you know, I would say that a lot of the people I like to think that a lot of the people that I am surrounded by um, share that sentiment. I mean, have are pained by it, um, but not really sure what they can or should do about it. Um, or, you know, if they are doing certain things, um, you know, they're always looking for something more. But, you know, at the same time, um, 
I don't know. I think uh, that's a that's a tough question um, because I think it goes into intent. Like, what are, what are what are people wanting to get out of the sorts of things that that they're doing to tackle racism or understand it better? You started your uh, response, Mister Reed. You said, "I'd like to think." That is important phrasing because. I'd like to think I had a billion dollars or I'd like to think just because I'd like to think something doesn't mean that it's true. That's why I say that's, that's a curious way. uh, That's a curious way of starting that response um, about white people being often greatly and sincerely pained by racism. I guess let's, let's ask this. Mm -hmm. What evidence do you see that a substantial number of people classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism based on what exactly? You know, I actually wouldn't agree with that. I don't think that I, I don't believe that a substantial number of white people are pained by it. I think, um, I mean, we see blatant racism around this country all the time. And I wouldn't say that those people are, Pained by racism, I think they're subjugating it or they're they're perpetuating it. So I don't know that a substantial number of people. Um, I, I I can't really speak to you know the volume or how many people really um, feel that feel that pain around racism. Right on, right on. Much obliged. I, we've had a number of white people over the years who have said. They do not think that that is true. They do not see evidence. They do not think that a substantial number of individuals classified as white are sincerely greatly pained by racism. And yes, I would. And I think that's important because this was in a mainstream publication, this uh, article by a non-white author. And frequently Mm -hmm. people will write, speak about racism, and they will say things that are not accurate. And that is such an enormous part of the problem and I would say most of the time the inaccuracies they benefit racists they help maintain the system of white supremacy I would say that is a big one thinking that you have a significant number of white people who feel bad about Isaac McGee Elias Clayton Elmer Jackson that George Floyd that is not true based on evidence Um, with I guess kind of pivoting to the text specifically full title the lyncher in me a search for redemption in the face of history uh, and you disclose in the book there are other books i mean hey we're talking about a lynching that happened over a century ago there are other books about what happened with this case that go into great detail there were lots of newspaper articles and all of that good stuff so it's not like you were you know charting new territory what was your purpose in right. writing The Lyncher in Me? Um, you know, it's it's interesting. I think initially, um, I, I think one of the impetus for me to, to put uh, words to paper and, and write something about it just came from um, people asking why I or my family stood up to um, to acknowledge what my great grandfather had done and to be able to support the memorial. And so I, at the time, um, like I said, when the, uh, when, when I learned about the lynchings and I learned about my great grandfather's connection to it, 
um, one of the first things my mother and I agreed that we wanted to do was to support the committee and um, be able to for me to go and speak on behalf of of our family and that was kind of really the end of it and um, but one of the things that kept coming up is people asking well why did you do that why would you you know why would you take this on or take responsibility for something you didn't do and it had seemed kind of a no-brainer to me at the time I didn't really um, analyze why it just seemed like the right thing to do um, and I guess the only comparison I could I could make with that is again I was a um, teacher and a vice principal and you know I was always really big on kids taking responsibility for their actions and or you know taking responsibility even for other people to help them and so um, it just seemed like a natural response and so it was it that was kind of the start of it where I thought well maybe there's you know, maybe I need to explore this more and maybe there's something I can, um, you know, articulate better about why our family did it. Not so much of telling everyone why they should do it, but really just through the lens of, of my own family and what we did. Okay. Why uh, the title, The Lyncher in Me? Um, well, that actually is interesting. That came from, you know, I was, I was working on, um, you know, not, not to go on a bird walk here, but I, when I started writing it, a lot of really the draft work was about the, um, the concept of an apology and, you know, apologizing for the sins of the father or apologizing for, you know, some role your family or your tribe had in, in something that maybe you didn't do. And um, it wasn't really working. And um, the editor I was working with at the Minnesota Historical Society Press, she she suggested making it more of a memoir and really looking at who who I am and who my family is and my experiences growing up. And so one of the things that I ended up doing is I ended up taking a workshop from um, uh, um, Rebecca Walker, who's Alice Walker's daughter. And um, she was uh, teaching this class on memoir writing. And we just had a conversation and we were talking about um, this sort of struggle with um, the message and um, maybe, you know, some of the challenges um, that that I had in associating with my great grandfather on this and, and generational trauma and all of that. And so she actually suggested, oh, so it's like you're coming to terms with the lyncher and you. And, and that was really the kind of aha moment of um, why the title, um, even though it's, I mean, it was kind of provocative and it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't something I can take credit for, but um, uh, so that's, that's really the genesis of that title. How interesting. Fascinating. Rebecca Walker, writer in her own right, just like her mother. Yes. Um, was your editor for this project um, a non-white female or a white female? She was a white female. Okay, okay. Constructive suggestion, perhaps. Make it a memoir to kind of shift yeah. the focus and then assist to Rebecca Walker. Okay. Um, who who was your intended audience? Like, so you sit down to write this and they say, let's make it a memoir. So the lyncher in me, mm -hmm. who did you envision reading this project? White people, non-white people, everybody, people in Minnesota. 
Um, yeah, I think kind of all of the above. I mean, I definitely thought that it would appeal more to people from Minnesota because it had to do with the history. But I think as I went to to develop the story more and really kind of dive into my own family history and dysfunction, um, and I started to to try to try to put together the notion of, um, like I said, generational trauma or you know. Um, even epigenetics, that that notion of that that trauma trickles down from from generation to generation, and and it for me it was kind of a look at you know what happens in a family if you bury things and you don't talk about it, and it doesn't just go away. And so for me, there was a lot of my writing that I imagine would appeal to people like that, people who um, you know struggle in their personal lives or people who. Um, are kind of trying to run away from um, dysfunction, you know, in, in their family, and but not wanting to deal with it. Just that notion of really opening up that wound um, and dealing with it so that healing can happen. Um, so that was kind of that aspect of it. I didn't really, you know, I, I wove it in with the story of the lynching, and, and certainly at, at, a, at a point when I went to do more research into the victims, um, the men who were killed, um, there was a, a sense that I had to want to wanna bring a face to the men who were lynched because there wasn't really a lot known about them. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I'll admit that I, I kind of um, had this balance on a sense of guilt where I was careful about talking a lot about my family and even about my great-grandfather, but not giving a voice to any of the men who were lynched. And so that was a struggle in itself just to find information, but it was a blessing that I was able to find information on Elmer Jackson so I could at least give him a story. Context of white supremacy, privileged black male Elmer Jackson. Uh, how long, how many, I was going to say years, but that's a little presumptuous. How much time did you spend doing the research before you actually able to get this year book finished? Um, I would say, well, it was about, it was about five years from the memorial to the publication of the book. Um, but, you know, so give or take, you know, I probably started, um, had the idea for the book, you know, maybe six months after the memorial and was done with the research, maybe about a year before the, the, the release. So probably about three and a half years, three and a half, four years um, of, of just research and then structuring the story. Wow. Labor. Right on. Okay. Okay. Uh, you start, this is uh, chapter one, part one, the lyncher in me. Uh, third paragraph. You write, I've been among people who I'm sure would sooner see me dead and living with another man and I know that there are times and places that I might be discovered hanging from a hastily fashioned noose or tied to a barbed wire fence enveloped by men and women who see me not as a human being but as a category an aberration an epithet I take in seething hatred in the photo this is the lynching the objectification of a human being set apart from the masses, and I know that as far removed as I am from the men beaten and lynched 
that night long ago, I am not so different. I took great pause on that. I said, wow, wow, wow. I guess one for folks uh, who might not have one and one is two. Uh, So you are classified gay white man. I guess the reveal from this paragraph, we should make sure every. Okay. Okay. Everybody's caught up. Got that. Okay. Didn't leave anyone behind. Um, So based on you being classified as a gay white man and open about it, I guess it's page one of the book practically. Um, that's comparable to these three black males who were lit where I guess even before I get to that. So 21st century, you think it's possible that you could end up being lynched on the basis of you being a gay white man? Um, well, it has happened. I mean, you know, Matthew Shepard and, and, you know, it, it, those things do happen, but I, you know, I, I also would take pause at that as well. And I'm trying, I wish I had the book in front of me because I, there's another section where I um, use a similar phrasing, but I don't want to do a tight comparison with myself between myself and, and the men who were lynched. Um, so that was, so it was interesting because I, I, you know, when I worked with my editor on that, um, she, you know, she wanted me to kind of really explore that similarity between being uh, a gay man and, I'm a person of color and I, and I didn't really agree with that completely. Um, and partly is I personally, I've been very fortunate. I haven't really experienced, um, blatant homophobia or gay bashing or anything like that in my life other than, um, you know, unexpected jokes or, you know, um, attempts at legislation to be passed against me. But, um, you know, I, I've always been really, um, open about the fact that I can, I can choose to walk into a store and nobody knows that I'm gay. Um, I can apply for a job and nobody knows that I'm gay. And I have that luxury and I have that privilege to, to be able to kind of pick and choose who I tell about my more minority status. And um, so I, I know that that's not the same case for a person of color. And so I, I definitely don't want to put myself on equal, um, equal standing with, um, with, with what a person of color would go through. Um, you know, that being said, you know, is there an inkling of comparison? Possibly if you just look at the notion of phobia um, and, you know, that, that notion of, um, you know, the, the nameless, faceless victim um, for whatever reason that hate exists. But um, that's about, to me, that's where the comparison ends. Wow. Wow. Thank you for the response, Mr. Reed. I'm going to give a quick pause for James Byrd Jr. Context of white supremacy. I'm going to read that paragraph again, just for listeners. Again, this is chapter one. This is basically page one of the book, The Lyncher in Me, third paragraph. I've been among people who I'm sure would sooner see me dead than living with another man. And I know that there are times and places that I might be discovered hanging from a hastily fashioned noose or tied to a barbed wire fence enveloped by men and women who see me not as a human being, but as a category, an aberration, an epithet. Hmm. I even, I'm going to pause again. Are you familiar with the book? 
the book of Matt, Hidden Truths about the murder of Matthew Shepard? I'm not familiar with that particular book, no. There is only one. They say, Gus T., what have you been doing for 15 years? We interviewed Stephen Jimenez, the author of the book of Matt, Hidden Truths about the murder of Matthew Shepard. What is his main point of that book? This was not a hate crime. I'm going to catch the slow people up. So that part about he could end up hastily fashioned noose or tied to a barbed wire fence, the barbed wire fence, that's Matthew Shepard. The main point of Stephen Jimenez's book, Matthew Shepard ended up on that barbed wire fence not because he was so-called gay. This was a drug deal gone bad. And he went there and interviewed the police officers. It's well-researched. Like He was interviewed on NPR. That's how I heard about it. Like He talks about NPR in the book. I listened to NPR. They had Mr. Jimenez as a guest, and I was stunned. And it caught my attention because of the exact comparison that you gave. I put Matthew Shepard to the side, even though I say confidently, that's not a hate crime. That's a drug deal gone bad. But we put that to the side. Can you name a white person like ever? They were lynched on the basis of being a gay white person. Yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, off the top of my head, no. I mean, the, um, you know, the cases that I know about uh, whites being lynched, um, it was frontier justice kinds of things. Um, uh, and so, I mean, it's, um, so I don't have an example for that. And I'll say, you know, that I have, I have read um, subsequently to the book, I have read uh, the notion of, of, of Matthew Shepard's death being uh um, a drug deal gone bad, and you know, at the time when I was reading it, it definitely has lent some credence to the story. Um, at the time that I wrote the book, and I'm not saying this is an excuse. At the time that I wrote the book, um, it was the generally accepted, for, at least from from where I stood, the generally accepted understanding that it that it was a hate crime. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean that's a good question. I I can't and and won't be able to give an example of a gay person being lynched, um, bashed and beat up. Absolutely. I mean, my cousin was almost beaten to death. Um, and he's a gay man. Um, and, um, for being gay and, but lynched, no. And I, and, um, so yeah, I wouldn't make that direct comparison on that. The book didn't say bashed and beaten up. People get bashed and beaten up for all kinds of reasons. You stepped on my foot. You spilled a drink on me. You walked in front of me. You looked at me funny. You wear glasses for no reason at all. People get bashed and beat up for lots of reasons. That's not what you said in the Mm -hmm. book. You wrote lynched, hastily fashioned noose, lynched or tied to a barbed wire fence. And we can't name one. That is the sort of thing that I submit. Right. And even rewind to Matthew Shepard. Read that. Reading is more important than watching television and nonfiction. The book of Matt, Hidden Truths about the murder of Matthew Shepard, because Mr. Jimenez, he said when he visited, when I want even people, this is important because the hate crime bill is not James Byrd Jr. and Matthew Shepard. That's not what it is. It's the Matthew Shepard. And sometimes 
that's just it. They leave out, oh yeah, that Negra that they dragged to death in Jasper, Texas, that almost happened at 2000, happened after O.J. Simpson. They don't even mention James Byrd Jr., and I've never heard anyone contest whether or not that happened. Everyone has pretty much unanimously, oh, yeah, that did happen. They dragged him behind that truck because he's classified as black and urinated on him. Ugh. But the Matthew Shepard, no. And even Mr. Jimenez, he said, I tried to tell people originally, hey, guys, I don't, as a journalist, hey, guys, I don't think this is a hate crime. I think this might be a drug deal gone bad. And he said that was hushed up. People told him to be quiet, get out of here. It was a hate crime. We're going to march, and that's that. He's like, whoa, wait a minute. Don't we want, I mean, nobody should be killed, but wait a minute, this might not. And they told him to shut up and get out of here. And based on that, now we don't even remember James Byrd Jr., black male, modern. It's Matthew Shepard. That like, oh my God, that is, that right there, I generally submit as a major act of white supremacy. I mean, if you could have named five, I would have still said, I think that's an act of racism. I mean, what kind of false equivalency are we drawing here? We don't even have one name on the list. I don't even, I can't even believe that you would write and think truthfully as a white man in Seattle, I've been here for the gay pride parade, sir. Lit up Capitol Hill. Are you serious? You in Seattle, you in any part of Washington state think you could end up lynched from a light pole? Really, Mr. Reed? Well, I mean, I appreciate you, you know, pushing me hard on that. I, uh, um, I don't have a response for you on, on the viability of that. I, uh, um, you know, I will submit that I that the wording was uh, not accurate. Obviously, on um, when you're looking at this notion of whether or not there's, I can come up with names of a person being lynched, a white person being lynched uh, based on their sexual orientation. Um, so yeah, it. I I hear you. I hear you that it that it reeks of sensationalism on that. Um, that wasn't my intent. Uh, like I said, I when I wrote it, um, I think in hearing it and, and recalling, I, I was just trying to draw a comparison of the fact that um, I could just as easily be victimized by someone who's homophobic. Um, and so, you know, I appreciate you pushing me on this. I mean, I understand that the concept of lynching is... Um, I don't want to say sacred that that doesn't that's not the right words um but it shouldn't be thrown around as easily as I did if that makes sense accuracy is very important and I didn't say sensationalism I say this is an act of racism yeah. and I would even say willful the mm-hmm. editor would be indicted on this too if something mm-hmm. you looked at this and said whoa 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 that's <laughs> Wait a minute now. Let's not get out of let's not get out of pocket. <laughs> Mr. Calm all that down. Mm-hmm. That is a willful act of white supremacy racism. And I'm pointing that out because yeah. this is on page one of the book, one, and 
this is so common white people lying and I mean oh ball face deliberate five plus five is 203 lying you know this is not they do this all the time it's gay people are treated like black people gays are the new black like are you serious and they will look at you without even snickering yep come on well, I don't know but but like I said I don't agree with that I don't I don't agree that that I would not say that gay people are treated like black people. Um, I can see how it can be pulled from from the way I worded that statement, and that wasn't my intent. And um, but I I understand it, and I understand what you're saying. And um, you know that's that's um, yeah. I don't really know what know what further I can say on that. Um, oh, but I hear what you're saying, and I understand you on that. And I appreciate you calling me out on that. It doesn't, it doesn't upset me or, or bother me on that. I, I hear it, and it, and if that's, if that's the message that came across from the way I worded that, then that's incorrect. That's not, um, that's not what I intended, and uh, um, that's all I can say really on that. I do not agree with that. I think it is what was intended, but we will press the other matters of the text Um, just not even that far forward Uh, this is chapter 5 of the text Uh, the lyncher in me you write uh, our children are born as clean slates it is said but that's not true at all genetics mark us with a map already in place a packet of seeds I put into the dirt is pretty predictable as long as I do what's required to raise the plant to adulthood. But climate, nutrients, pests, all can affect the plant's life. Our family, the crucial people in our lives, are like gardeners nurturing us through the seasons, influencing us with their actions, their habits, their words. Our son came to us when he was nearly 18 months old. His life had already begun in earnest, so it was our task as his new parents to shepherd him the rest of the way. His genetic slate may have been already in place, but his journey was and is far from complete. For the matter, so is mine. I'll pause there. This is early in the book again, chapter five. That's kind of also a really big personal reveal very early in the book. Why did you decide to include all and all of that right at the beginning of the text? Gay white man. And we've adopted a child at 18 months old. Um, Oh gosh. I, you know, I think part of it is, um, again, I, I'm pretty sure that I laid out sort of the way the way the discovery of the lynching happened um, was me doing family research and and a lot of that the family tree information was my motivation on that was to try to really understand my family myself better um, having grown up around alcoholism and, and abuse from my dad um, and I wanted to understand myself better to in order to be a better father to my son and um you know the intent was to kind of set up that template or set up the idea of um of of a parent's effects on their on their child um not wanting to repeat some of the same mistakes that my own father and stepfather had done 
Fascinating, fascinating. They even they even mentioned that uh, in the audio segment that we started with about all of this history and this lynching being in the DNA, uh, using that same sort of kind of genetic and inherited uh, history and conduct, that same sort of metaphor. Um, wow, that's hmm, hmm. Have to ponder. Did did I don't know the editor or your partner? Did anybody say whoa, whoa, whoa? Like I don't know. Maybe the child doesn't want to be in the book or maybe maybe you should leave that out did anybody suggest that Mm, no not really i mean you mean just to not even you mean the concept of it or or whether whether to even mention my son in the book uh the latter whether to even mention your son in the book no there wasn't any suggestion or concern about um about about talking about him um there isn't really a lot of personal stuff that I shared about his, uh, what I know about his biological family or his experiences or anything before we got him. Hmm. Okay. Right on. Uh, let's see a little bit, uh, further forward in the text. This is chapter seven, the lyncher and me by Mr. Warren Reed. I don't know if this is the passage that you had in mind or not, but, uh, you write my grandmother talking about the familial connections and all of this. My grandmother, Margaret, had been born and raised in Mississippi. Growing up, I'd been all too aware of the realities of violent racism that had been part of the culture of her own young life. Westerns on Sunday afternoon television often showed a lynching or two, a portrayal of earned justice for horse thieving or stagecoach robbing. But the idea that a mob lynching could have happened in the north far from the KKK rallies and cross burnings of the deep south still seemed like an anomaly. It wasn't, though, as I would discover over and over again in early American culture, lynchings had been a form of vigilantism practiced throughout the land, regardless of the condemned man's or woman's race. That was another one where I kind of had a pause like, okay, so Mm -hmm. how many white women have been lynched in this here part of the world, Mr. Reed? That is a good question, and you know it's it's so interesting to me when you're reading this back to me because it's been so long since I wrote the book, and I honestly have to say that i've I've continued to process you know and talked with different people about this subject over the years and um you know even you reading that i there's some cringeworthy moments for me as a writer um first of all I'm gonna openly say that passage you rewrote was horribly overwritten and um and so i i can see hear your pause on that and because i didn't i didn't even like the phrasing that i chose um about it being all too common because it almost sounds like i'm saying well it was you know it was it was justified or it was no big deal and um i don't believe that and um and i wouldn't do a, a comparison between a horse wrestler being hanged from a tree and a black man being pulled from jail and hanged from a tree. Um, those are completely different examples. Um, so I, you know, I'd be the first one to admit that I, I don't like the way that sounds the way I wrote that. That was not my intent on that. Just pointing out for non-white listeners, victims of white supremacy, uh, it's not that I don't like the way that it sounds. It's that this is another part that is not accurate 
And when mm-hmm. I see these sort of things, there's such a long history of white people lying. And you talk about that early in the book. Yeah. There's such a long mm-hmm. history of white people lying, deliberately being inaccurate when they talk about racism, white supremacy, that that immediately comes to them. And they do the same types of things. Mm-hmm. They do the false equivalency, as I said before, gay white gay people, white LGBTQ people are treated like negras. That is a lie. And we've had a number of white people, they said the exact same lie that you did that, oh man, they've lynched negras. And I've done the same thing. Like, really? Name one. Or they'll even do the big one. Like, yeah, they didn't allow gay people in towns. Like, really? Can you name an area where they had a sign up that said no fags allowed? Name one town where that was the case. And we get silence every time. Like, man, I can name bunches of times. This whole books where they got signs up. No Negras alive. They got whole big billboards, pictures of them, and all of that. Give me one that says no fags allowed. Crickets. Never get one. And we get that again. White women lynched. Really? You got a picture? Show me one. Even, in fact, the black misandry of it all, because this here is a book about the lynching of three privileged black males in Duluth. I've even had to point that out. Really? The people who get lynched are black males. This is not even equal opportunity for all black people. Not that that would be better, but I mean, just make it be truthful. Who are the people that are being lynched? Black males. That's what this is. Yes, I know about Leo Felton and all of that. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, yes, there have been other individuals lynched, even white people, horse thieves and all of that at the end of the day. The people overwhelmingly who ended up hanging from lamp posts, telephone poles, tree branch, whatever we can find. Black males. And the evidence is why is that so like it's like we can't even just say that. We gotta know it wasn't just black males, we gotta include, you know, Leo Felton was lynched too, and they might have lynched the white we gotta make up <laughs> incidents. Is that Am I being historically inaccurate? Does the evidence support what I'm saying? The overwhelming victims of lynchings in this part of the world were black males. Is that true, Mr. Reed? Oh, yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Absolutely. It's very rare for people to say that. I mean, it's, that's surprising because, the, you know, the, the history shows that. I mean, like I said, I mean, if... Um, you know, any indication of, you know, like when I talked about the frontier justice and lynching and things like that, um, what, what comes to mind when I, when I say that or when I read about it, um, I think of old westerns and things like that, and it's cartoonish, and it's, um, it's, it's not, I agree, it's not the reality of the lynching experience in American history. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you completely on that. Much obliged, Mr. Reed. Thanks for not being defensive. Strive for accuracy. I say that on the program all the time. Uh, Mm -hmm. Context of white supremacy. You know, it's that this whole lynching where they got these black, three black males, uh, give the names again, say their names. They say Isaac McGee, Mm -hmm. Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, these three privileged black males who reportedly worked for the circus. I... I was stunned because there's such a there's I mean whole books and lots of scholarship about the history of racism and the circus uh, in this part of the world that was the minstrel show before before the westerns mm-hmm. and the racism on TV 
It was the circus. We even talked, uh, we had Benjamin Reese as a guest on our program. Uh, he wrote the book, The Showman and the Slave. And the slave was Joyce Heth, uh, a black slave that he brought and put on display and all the rest of it. it. Just, are you familiar with the history of white supremacy in the circus here in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably not as not as uh, knowledgeable as you are on it. You, you've done your research, obviously, but yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with that. Yes, and the minstrel shows and um, the uh, um, the oddities and and all of that. I mean, yeah, and having someone pretending like they were from um, a, a, a tribe deep in Africa and 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 pushing the stereotypes around that. I'm familiar with those. Yeah. I'm I'm still learning myself, Mr. Reed. I'm I'm not an expert, but uh, all of us, that is for sure. Benjamin Reese, I just gave everybody a book, The Showman and the Slave. He was a guest in 2012. Fascinating uh, read all the way. Uh, so getting with the 1920 lynching specifically uh, that your great grandfather uh, was involved with. Even I had to pause because when I, I read the book and I was hearing the audio and they said, Oh, he had his car and he was going around to get the room and all of that. And I guess it did. It took a while for my brain computer to be like, Oh, wait a minute. This is a hundred years ago. A car is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, that would be not everybody has a car a hundred years ago. Like that's kind of a big deal. Having transportation, we can go around everybody up, get the rope. You gotta go do this. He raped this way. Anyway, uh, you talk in the book about how you found out about uh, doing research, which I encourage listeners to do all the time, just kind of digging and seeing where the family name popped up at and like, whoa, what is this? What what the world? <laughs> you kind of go through and uh, go back and dig into the archives of what happened with this whole uh, lynching uh, episode. Uh, I guess just the, the brief tidbit for listeners. So th- the three black males that I've named, they get accused of raping a white woman which you do not think happened which is not you know big but according to your re- you don't think mm-hmm. that these black men or any of the black males raped this white woman no okay no and based on based on what i've read and what the general consensus is now that um that there there, there was no assault and you know a physical examination of the woman didn't show any kind of um stress or any any kind of violence on her dr examines her at the time and says, nah, I don't really see evidence. What we've been, I don't really see any evidence of abuse and eh, nah. <laughs> they still pursue the Negros raped her. The Negros raped her. And they go yeah. get a posse up. Grandfather included. Uh, they go snatch them. Out. Oh, wait a minute. Matter of fact, let me even uh, back up. This reminded me, we've just been talking about January 6th other side of the country getting gearing up for presidential election uh, during the January 6, 2021 riots, they were not allowed to use more lethal weapons, which we talked about for lots of reasons. And we talked about the difference where if those had been black people, Al Sharpton storming the cat, like, Oh my God, the carnage yeah. and brutality we would have seen. If it had been me, the carnage that we would have seen, but it was mostly white people. So we didn't see yeah. all of that, man. I had such a flashback when I got to this is on page or chapter 13. <clears throat> so the mob granddad included in all of this. How do you, is it Don Dino? Is that how you say it? Don Dino? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Lewis Don Dino. So the mob in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, they're going to snatch these three black men, innocent privileged black males. You write uh, the details, neither reached 
nor matter to the growing mob waiting outside the station doors. Their ferociousness was fueled by another misunderstanding that was spreading widely. A group passing by the Tuscan home, this is the white woman who was allegedly raped, uh, had asked Irene's mother, who was standing on the porch, how her daughter was doing. She replied, she's in bed, which was unfortunately received as, she's dead. It wouldn't be long until the rioting crowd numbered nearly 10,000. Even that, this is a hundred years ago. There is no social, most people don't even have a phone, much less a car. 10,000, I've marveled at that a number of times, regardless of the jurisdiction and all the rest of it, to be able to amass in short order. Matter of fact, how many of you all think you could get a thousand people to show up in one location in three days. I think this is less than three days, but that's three days. You think you could get a thousand people to show up in one location, much less 10,000. That is staggering to me. Am I being goofy? Mr. Reed, you can tell me. No, it's, it's, it's crazy. And it's funny. I've never, I never really thought about that aspect of it before. Like how did, how did word spread around so fast? Not just the word, but the mood spread around so fast to get every get that many people down there. Um, I yeah, it's interesting. I haven't really thought about just the the logistics of that. Man, by any that's why I said granddad or great granddad had a car. That like oh my god, just that alone. You are a huge ringleader in all of this. Like, how do we get a, get in the car? Get in the car. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Horse. Right. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. We've got a 10,000 people. I don't even know the last time I've seen like a basketball game or something like it's lots of basketball games. They can't even get 10,000 people together. Anyway, that's not even the part I was trying to get to. Let me inside the jail. The small crew of policemen struggled to keep composed as the situation outside spun out of control. An earlier break-in attempt through the garage doors at the back of the station had been thwarted but the officers' options were severely limited. I don't want to see the blood of one white person spilled for six blacks, ordered police commissioner Bill Murnian, coincidentally the uncle of Luis Dandino's late wife Nellie. They were forbidden to use firearms, so the officers desperately tried other means to maintain control of the quickly collapsing situation, using a hose to douse the crowd in front of the entrance and scattering rioters like leaves from a walkway. I will say for listeners, it was, I don't know the correct word. What shall I say? Uh, Ironic? I use that for lack of a better word. But during the course of this riot... The racist mob, white great granddad may have been there, but they snatched the water hose and blast all of the white officers out of the way to get to the prisoners. Like, I don't even know what to call that. Like, turn, I don't, cause it's the racist in Alabama who did the same thing. So I don't even know if I already used the right word, but it did, it did give me pause from it. Like, dang, the water hoses again. Anyway, uh, but <laughs> white lives matter. That's what I thought. January 6th, it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. You can't use firearms. Mm-hmm. We can't use lethal force against the white people. And I know they're acting up and they shouldn't be doing this, but eh, white lives matter. What do you think, Mr. Reed? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that. I mean, we see that over and over again of um, um, just treating them differently because they're white. You know, they're more precious, apparently, according to, to the way they're acting, according to the decisions that are being made. Hmm. You on page 13 in describing what took place for folk for listeners, the book, I could mention it every time, every time, Delectable Negro, Human Consumption and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture, number one for a reason. You write this in chapter 13. He and Elmer Jackson were hurled from the station. Oh, I should have given the whole one. Uh, this is Isaac McGee and Elmer Jackson were hurled from the station into superior onto Superior Street and passed roughly from man to man until they stood naked from the waist up, their shirts hanging torn from their bodies, war paint of the blood from their faces streaking down their dark torsos as they were dragged up Second Avenue East toward First Street. Wild men and women lurched forward, clawing, spitting, punching, and kicking at the men in a gauntlet of unbridled fury. On the corner, a boy of 19 held a precarious balance on a, on the lamppost. He'd shined up the pole earlier in search of a perfect vantage point for the calamitous goings-on down the street. Now they appeared to be heading his way. A development the boy neither expected nor appreciated, and he began to scramble down, eager to escape the deadly events that were coming too close. Toss this rope over the top, kid. And I'll stop there. We kind of know what happens from there. But that is important mm-hmm. for so many reasons. I'll start. I said delectable Negro human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. You use even the word lust in describing all of this. It is, at least in my view, it is so sexualized. That's a big part of the book, Mm -hmm. even where he talks about the author, Vincent Water, the author of Delectable Negro, where he says, were these lynchings and even the punishment of slaves, the fact that white people can come and strip you naked, as it states here, You don't even have control over whether or not you have clothes on and then they can punish and castrate and all the rest of it. But all of that Mm -hmm. is hypersexual. Like I said, you use the term lust in describing all of this. What do you make of the And Even again, this is all about the alleged rape of a white woman. Mm -hmm. But what do you make Mm -hmm. of the, the maybe even homoerotic at minimum sexual aspects of this mm-hmm. act, this lynching. That's, that's interesting. I, 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 again, I'm saying again, that wasn't my intent on writing that. And so when you prefaced that, it was interesting for me to listen to that through that lens. Um, and I can see, I can see it fitting with what you're saying. My intent, um, I think in retelling the narrative of, again, this, this this is all information that I read from previous books and, and from the testimonies of what happened that night. Um, but my intent was just really to illustrate almost the dehumanization of, of what they were doing to the men. And, and to me, it's uh, if, if someone is, is wearing less clothing or they've been stripped, forcibly stripped, it's a very vulnerable, it, it puts them in a very vulnerable, violated uh, place. 
um, they're, you know, they're visibly, I don't want to say um, shamed, but I guess in a sense. Um, so that, to me, that was kind of the intent was to show how they were just further dehumanizing the men um, by not even letting them have their clothes on and um, basically kind of parading them like, um, like they were like their prey or, or like they're hunting them. And so that, that was really my intent on it, but to hear it through the context of, of, of how you prefaced it, um, I can't argue with, with, with your, re, with your response to that, because the word choices in there definitely not, definitely line up with that perception. You used the, uh, the term lust, his dying gasps, mm-hmm. fueled the crowd's lust for more of that's, I mean, for sure, sexual term, uh, though there's some. Sure. sure. I, yeah. And yeah, but I, at, at the same, to me, I think it's a broadly as like, um, like a hunger almost like, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't only quantify lust as a, as a sexual thing, um, uh, bloodlust is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a hunger for something. Um, and so that's, you know, it, to me that that's what I was intending with that was to talk about almost this like voracious hunger for something for blood or for, for violence. Mm, what did I say? The number one book is the delectable Negro human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture, eating the Negro and sexual arousal for the Negro is yeah. one in the same. Ah, oh, number one for w- so many reasons. I will need to find that book. Ah, oh, amazing. Absolutely. Game changer, or I will not a metaphor. It will change the way that you think about racism, white supremacy in mm-hmm. so many ways, mm-hmm. even the consumption of chocolate, which will dominate next month. Oh. Anyway, uh, you continue. I think this is so important because in fact, words, I pay attention to words, your writer. Uh, what do you mean when you use the term shame? Oh, that's a heavy one. Um, in relation, you know, in relationship to myself and my own feelings, or what other people may or may not feel, um, because I definitely, and that was something that I struggled with when uh, when we found this out. Um, the sense of shame that um, someone in my family, or that that somehow. Um, we as a family, granted, well before I was born, um, would have contributed to something like that. Um, so the shame is just that, um, uh, you know, um, that's not how I want to be viewed. That's not how I want my family to be viewed. Um, but that's the reality of what happened. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Hmm. In terms of, or I guess I still, so when you use the, cause you, I think you use the term shame in explaining it. So when you use the term shame, you mean 
Uh, you're asking me. Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I guess when I use the term shame, I you know just just em- almost maybe embarrassment or um, you know the opposite of pride. Um, you would rather it's something you'd rather keep hidden from other people that you you'd rather people didn't know. Um, and again, you don't want others to equate you with that that thing, that action that brings the shame. Hmm. That's fascinating. Thank you for indulging me. Um, the opposite of a sense of pride. That's that's fascinating. That's fa- wow. I have to really, particularly when I put that in the context of white supremacy racism um hmm okay we'll 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 give it let's see one time shame is in the book as i started at the mon as i stared sorry as i stared at the monitor horrified eyes burning and gut slowly nodding the growing clarity of truth began to sink in i scrolled down the text haltingly my hands shaking the link had led me to the June 7, 2000 issue of Ripsaw News, a weekly news and entertainment newspaper in Duluth, Minnesota. The article was titled Duluth's Lingering Shame. And in it, writer Heidi Bach Hansen chronicled the night of June 15, 1920, when six black circus workers had been arrested in connection with the alleged rape of a white teenage girl. That's one time where it pops up. Now, that's in the title of a different article, but still, Duluth's mm-hmm lingering shame so i even have to wonder that so the people of like what i said before so a substantial number of white people in duluth feel a sense of shame about this like hmm (laughs) think about that now particularly i put that in context with i'm gonna go back now so this is chapter 13 i'm just reading from the text up the Throw a little. A third young man was dragged forward, Elias Clayton, pleading futilely with the crowd, which chanted mockingly, "Lynch the third one! Lynch the third one!" A punch to the face quickly cinched Noose, and Elias shot into the air higher than either of the first two men as he twisted and struggled, gasping for air. A thug clinging to the pole swung a kick at him catching him squarely in the face the rope was fastened to a spike suspending Elias above his fellow murdered roustabouts throw a little light on the subject came a cry from the crowd and someone swung a car around perhaps his great granddad to face the lamppost training its searchlight on the morbid scene illuminating the mob like hunters showing off their kill Elias's body would at last be cut down not as an act of mercy but to better facilitate but to facilitate a better shot for superior photographer Ralph Greenfield dozens of men gathered around the dead smiling with pride and exhilaration as if posing at a post-game rally send them pictures to Alabama one person called Tell them to keep their negras. Someone might have done just that. Soon after the lynchings, the photo would be printed on postcards and offered for sale in several retail outlets in and around Duluth. The cards would sell out within days. 
Now, I love it that I didn't even have it highlighted that the word pride popped up. Bang. <laughs> Beautiful. I didn't even plan that. But woo. But I mean, really, the photo sold out in days. That right there tells me I don't see any shame about this. Like through yeah. and through. It's total. It's what I said before. Does who feels bad about this? I don't see that. It's the exact opposite. They got forget these three niggers. What about the niggers that are still in jail? They need to be prosecuted like it's total pride. This was supposed to happen. We did what we were supposed to do. They lynched or they raped that white girl or they could have or they wanted to or whatever. And we thought the rest of the niggers should be thrown out of town, too, because they might do the same thing. Isn't that true, Mr. Reed? Oh, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the things that was always challenging for me in reading the accounts of what happened is they talked about. Uh, they, I mean, it's just um, other writers or, or um, uh, articles about it. They talked about how the day after this happened, it was, and I and I copied the phrase that, that someone had used, that it was almost like this collective hangover that um, people sort of didn't want to talk about it. And yet these other things happened. I mean, the, um, you know, telling people to leave town and, and the continued prosecutions. Um, those things still still happen, so I wouldn't agree that the sense of shame permeated everyone right away. Um, I think the the title, and I can't speak to what Heidi Bach Hansen intended with the title, but um, just from talking with people about um, when the story came to light, it, a lot of people just talked about how they grew up in Duluth and never heard about this, that it was this sense of shame no one wanted to talk about it. Um, in the modern time. So, you know, be that as it may, um, it's in stark contrast to what you see in, in not just that postcard, but other postcards that, that show the same thing. They're in their Sunday best. And that is a pattern of the white supremacy racism as well. That's all throughout James Lowen's book, lying about it. Once these events have happened, everyone was proud about it. Then, Oh no, we didn't, I didn't even know nothing about it. It's their relatives their other grandfathers and aunts and uncles and everyone else who participated. What do you mean? You don't know. Very common lie. Yeah. I don't know. Lynch, I can't even spell lynching. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, that in fact, I even back up to include, I think that's so important. You include the presence of white women and white children at this lynching that is so important i think that's another big lie uh it's positive that it's white men it's white men white men white men and you can't have a system of white supremacy racism dominate the entire planet without having white women being right there running all of this the plantation system of white supremacy racism together and even those lynchings we've had historians white authors come on this program and talk about that has been a deliberate aspect of racism writing the role and presence of white women out of these lynchings i think that's so important why did you uh, or i don't know was that a conscious effort to make sure that you included that that this wasn't just white dudes this was white men white women white children at this lynch 10,000. Yeah. I mean, I, I included it because that was, that was the information that I found when I was researching it, that um, it wasn't just men, that there were, that there were women. There was a woman who, you know, took a swing at, at one of the, the men um, being dragged out. So, um, 
yeah, so I was just uh, repeating what, what I had read, what I had researched. Evidence, evidence, love it. Um, <clears throat> the I'll get one of our folks who dialed in as well, folks who have questions. Um, I get one thing that stood out. I mentioned the book already. Are you familiar with James Lowen's book, uh, Sundown Towns? He passed away pretty recently. It's about the history of white towns excluding black people in particular. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the book, but I'm familiar with the term, with with uh, yeah, with with what Sundown Towns are. I guess that. Whew, wow, it uh, that is another book radically changed mm. my thought process when I speak because. So many of the areas that you mentioned, Everett, Washington, Washington State is a big feature in that book. Um, in fact, mm-hmm. it's mostly northern states that he talks about this, where this is a phenomenon, if not the entire country, but it's especially focused in the north. But Washington State, Minnesota, Duluth, Bennett, Wisconsin, Bennett, Wisconsin mm-hmm. is listed at 98 percent white. Wow. Yeah. As someone who yeah. we read that whole book, Sundown Towns, in our book club, and I check towns on a regular basis, like Jesus, White Christ, Mister Reed, ninety-eight per- one. The whole premise of James Lawrence, but that is not by accident, cousins. That sort of statistic, like whoo, that is deliberate, over and over and over, just like the lynchings of black males, but. Ninety-eight percent white. Whew. Everett, Washington, is a sundown town as well. And in fact, oh, oh I learn a little bit every day, man. Uh, so this is from the University of Washington's website. So people don't think I'm looking up some radical Negro mm-hmm. nonsense. Uh, they have a specific subheading just for Everett, Sonomish County. That's your stomping grounds. You grew up graduate of Everett yeah, High School. That's, okay, <laughs> that's where I grew up and where I left. They uh, they write for Everett in 1970. Snohomish County counted only 1,012 black residents. 43 mm-hmm. of them. Wait, gotta wait for this one. No. Context of white supremacy. Woo. One of one. James Lowen Sundown is amazing. Everybody should read that book. The correct term should be racially restricted regions. And I think he even mentions this point in the book. Let me give you the sentence now. In 1970, Snohomish County counted only 1,012 black residents, 43 of them inmates. In Monroe Prison, Asians. That's what you were going to (laughs) say. What else could it be? Asians numbered only 937. The tiny numbers speak to something other than racial segregation. Hmm, what could that be? Mm -hmm. Exclusion was the issue. The county had a reputation for hostility towards black and Asian people. Woo. When did you grow up in Everett, Mr. Reed? I, well, I was born in 67, and so I grew up in the mid to late 70s there for the most part. Um, but that's fascinating. I was not aware of that. I was very aware that Everett was a very white town, um, and there wasn't a lot of people of color. And I, uh, my memory of, of really any um, 
other ethnic group were often Southeast Asians, um, refugees. And, um, but that wasn't in huge numbers. Um, but yeah, I, that is interesting. I, that's another book I'll have to take a look at or information to look at because I was not aware of the, uh, I guess, official, official decision-making that was, uh, that was shaping that. That's yeah, that's not an accident. Um, did you, do you remember having like black children? I know we're going to get to Donita for sure, but I mean, do you remember yeah. having black students, black classmates, black neighbors? Very, children? very few. I remember, um, in elementary school, there was one black family in our neighborhood and, um, uh, I barely got to know them before my parents split up and we moved. Um, I, I write about, yes, um, about, uh, uh, I, I, I name her Donita in the book, um, uh, that I did not have a good relationship with. Um, and, uh, other than her, there were maybe two or three other, um, black students at my school that I remember. And it was, um, yeah, there there just was not a lot of ethnic diversity in my schools growing up. <laughs> Deliberately so. <laughs> yeah, God. apparently. Uh, the universe, and I mean, I can't understate. This is not Gusty Renegade. This is not some wacky black person who hates black people. This is on the University of Washington's webpage. Mm. They say Everett, Sonomish County had a reputation for hostility to black people. Do you think it's possible that your mm. parents were ignorant about this? They didn't know that the Negro does not do too well in Sonomish County? Uh, that's a good question. Um, it's always possible that my parents were ignorant of a lot of things. Um, but um, I just don't know. I don't know what they knew or, or what their interactions were with, with, uh, around that subject. Um, you know, I like to say that I didn't get messages of racism from my parents, but you know, what does that mean? It just means I, I didn't hear blatant things. Um, but, um, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that on, on what they may did or didn't know. Did you hear any black, uh, jokes about black people racist jokes about black people growing up uh, from friends all the time yeah um i i didn't hear any from my mother um i'm i'm sure my stepdad you know he was just that kind of person and i'm sure he would he he said some but um no i often talk even like with my own kids about how um how yeah it was it it's unsettling how openly um we all as kids would would give say racist jokes racial jokes um truly tasteless jokes was this book that was going around and had some awful ones in there um and people and i would say like middle school uh, middle school ages when i recall hearing a lot of those and, and even saying them wow that is uh <laughs> that is amazing. can you 
indulge us. This is one of our stuff for 15 years. We've been studying and talking about this kid. Do you, if you remember any of the racist jokes uh, that you all used to banter about black people, if you could share one with us, that would be super appreciated. Is anyone that you can remember? Oh my gosh. It just, just the suggestion. I'm feeling nauseous right now. (laughs) I would not even, if I repeated one, it would be the first time in, uh, you know, 35 years, um, you know, uh, gosh, um, there was one about, uh, uh, a black kid hopping on a, on a trampoline and Velcro on the ceiling. I remember that. Um, and that's the, the only one that comes to mind right now. I'd have to kind of process it. I've really, I, I have not, like I said, I even just giving, even just giving the basics of that, um, it's just ugly to me. So I, um, I in, indulged you on in sharing that with you. Oh, that's, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, Mr. Warren Reed, thank you for sharing. Um, I will even tell you for our listeners, we've been at 15 years. We have been asking white guests for 15 years. Hey, because we've had white guests on who grew up in the South, like Mississippi and Louisiana, places like Georgia. And they said, man, Gus, literally, I've heard thousands of racist jokes and I believe because sometimes they'll be older like 60s that type of thing so I and I mean they're not lying mm-hmm. have every really yep I believe that and be like well tell mm-hmm. one just give us one to go oh no 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 like <laughs> that's the vast majority of the time they'll admit yeah. oh yeah I've heard bunches and bunches and more than I could ever dream tell us when I say this because I keep saying white people lie especially mm-hmm. when talking about racism racist jokes that is one of the few times white people speak honestly about mm-hmm. racism. Mm-hmm. I say for you, matter of fact, didn't I start this program? What did I tell you? We found your book. We had Jeffrey Ward as a guest on the program. What did we talk about? His report from insult to estrangement and injury, the violence of racist police jokes which incidentally is co-authored by Raul Perez, who wrote the souls of white jokes. He was a guest on the program in 2022 man. Oh, there's only one cows. Do you know we talked with Raul, Dr. Raul Perez. We talked with him about the tasteless, jokes series and even one more time the best book delectable negro what is that book called again truly tasteless jokes Mm -hmm. we read some of the jokes what was one of the jokes from truly tasteless jokes because they got a whole chapter on negros what was one of the jokes what do you call a black millionaire industrialist a I don't know tycoon <laughs> anyway oh. all back in the archives okay. uh, you probably heard that one before um, 
the at we got the trampoline and the velcro on the roof. The hair would get the nigra trapped. We got that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, okay. Many of these jokes they suggest violence towards black people too. That's a major theme, mm-hmm. uh, and just having fun dehumanizing black people. We even spoke about that before. That comes up in so many different ways. <laughs> can't mm-hmm. keep emphasizing. You can't be ignorant about racism, and understand what's in quotes funny about these jokes if you were ignorant about mm-hmm. racism it would all just be what huh tycoon what mm-hmm. i don't velcro what that's what you'd be saying all the time we don't hear that mm-hmm. the people just oh man here we go again <laughs> you can't be ignorant about racism and understand these jokes uh mm-hmm. man oh man chapter 18 <laughs> wow this is a whopper let me I want to read a teaspoon and get you to share. Then I'll, I'll nab one of our callers here. Wow. This okay. is the lyncher in me, Mr. Warren Reed. So we've got the lynching. The family's found out about this. And, you know, wow, what are we going to do? Blah, blah, blah. Mr. Reed writes, many times over the years, I had asked my mother if she'd grown up with messages of racism. She and my father had been very vocal about racial tolerance, and I didn't recall anything else coming from my grandparents' home. Still, I'd known that my grandmother was born and raised in Mississippi, and from what I'd seen in the movies and read in books, slavery had been all over the South. Therefore, everyone from the South must have been prejudiced against blacks. On the contrary, my mother said her mother had no had had no patience for racist words and especially spoken fondly of a in quotes negra she'd said it in the most affectionate of voices i don't know i say negra in that fashion i think i probably use the i sound more than the e but i say that mm. about five times a program and i don't know what the affectionate rendition of Nick. I have to think. I have to think right. of my mom or someone and think Negra, that Negra woman, Nick, never mind. Let me continue. She said it in yeah. the most affectionate of voices who had lived in the family home after my grandmother's mother had died. Mammy, as she referred to mm-hmm. her, was the family's cook and caretaker, a woman who had stepped in as a mother figure for my grandmother, teaching her to cook, sew, and read Bible stories and then there had been Black Bill the story of his relationship with Lewis who was at the lynching helped define her grandfather's character for my mother elevating him in her eyes to the role of peacemaker a man of the people certainly far removed from the image of misguided vigilante the story my mother shares of Black Bill for me conjured up the vision of a solitary dark figure shuffling up the sidewalks of Edmonds. That's dangerous. He worked for the railroad and lived by the tracks near the water in a small shack and the great shack the Great Northern Railway provided for him and being the only black man in Edmonds, even in 1953, Bill would have needed to take whatever perks life would give him. White people approaching him on the street typically would continue talking Taking no notice of the man ambling toward them, Bill would cast his eyes down and he'd step from the sidewalk into the gutter where he'd stand respectfully until they passed. He'd been in his late forties when my mother knew him, 
a man of stocky pants. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll tell you what I'm laughing. I'm sorry. That word stocky is close. It's the word that I normally see is strapping, but that's not what he said. But that is close okay. to one of those that I look like. I do not hear white people get described as strapping ever. It is just <laughs> Negroes, but that is... That is, this is like a cousin phrasing, a man of stocky build, because it's, it's so physical, stocky build and broad shoulders and hands that dwarf those. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, get it together. Get it together. His skin was very, oh, man, you are killing me here, Mr. Reed. Like we already got that he was dark, dark black bill. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. So much so that one couldn't help but notice him coming from clear at the other end of the block. My mother remembers Black Bill with vague but fond memories. The gentleman who affectionately, there's that word again, called her Nellie Rose, ma'am, and her mother simply ma'am. No one knew where he'd better. Man, we'll have no niggers in Edmonds. No one knew where he'd come from. As far as the people of Edmonds were concerned, it was as if the man had no past. But then, as my mother explains regretfully, who would be interested enough to have asked him any questions about himself back in the 50s or even now? He had likely been from somewhere in the South. My mother believes, judging from the accent by the accent he'd held in common with my mother, he spoke very respectfully to a fault. My mother struggles to describe a man she hardly knew, but whose existence she now holds on to desperately. You know, as though he were afraid he'd say something that would offend he knew his place, as the whites would say, approvingly. Bill was a familiar sight. And I'm going to stop right there because it's so overwhelming. Wow. That is, whew, that is so much. I have to go back before we can even get to dark, black, dark, black Bill. Uh, the <laughs> Mammy and the Negra who lived mm-hmm. way back in Mrs. Now, all of this starts in the context of what messages did you get about racism? <laughs> and this is how we get to all of these characters. What? I'm not even sure how to process all of this. Um, mm-hmm. It seems so plantational. I'll just start right there. The yeah, first, this seems yeah. so plantational. Like, did slavery end or no? Right. No, I, I agree with you. And I think, again, it, and you know, I think it it it's um, wince-inducing again to kind of hear um, uh, what what sounds like sort of excuse making of um, of the way my grandmother recalled uh, her childhood or the way they they referred to Bill. And you know, I think you know all I can say is. Um, you know, processing, you know, me writing about it, I was processing it as a person trying to come to terms with the story. And um, knowing my grandmother, it she, she, was, she came off to me as a very gentle, loving soul. It's only now that I look back and say, well, um, you know, Mammy and Negra, are are very racist terms and and very racist experiences. Um, I don't think I grew up thinking that my grandmother didn't have any racism that existed within her. Um, but I think um, I understand better now about 
uh, internal racism and, and societal racism and even passive racism that I didn't necessarily understand, you know, 30 years ago. I think when I thought of racism 30 years ago, I thought of, um, uh, you know, just the, the you know, the, the really, you know, the KKK and, um, you know, the, the extreme examples of that. Um, but of course, we know now that it, it uh, shows itself in all kinds of ways, whether, whether it's right in your face or very subtle. I'm just, wow. That's, I'm pointing that out for our non-white listeners. Um, the KKK, I'd say, is generally racial narrowing, and particularly in this context because we got mm-hmm. his great-grandfather helped lynch three black people and actually served mm-hmm. time for this act. And then the grandmother, she doesn't even, Mammy, it's like a capital M, like that became her name, Mm -hmm. Mammy, like, uh, (laughs) what do you mean, Kate? This is like the help. I mean, I don't even know, like, she might have been in the KKK. I don't know. Lewis's conduct seems pretty KKK-ish, even if he didn't have the hood. Uh, Mammy and Black, all of this is pretty Mm KKK-ish, hood or no. I mean... Mm It, it will, is it accurate to say that grandma was racist? I think in understanding that now, yes, absolutely. So how could she not be? Just being factual. Uh, yeah. Whew, man. And th- his name is Blackville. He lives in the shack in Edmonds. Mm-hmm. Now, even this is one because he said Mississippi, and I point that that's one thing, or one of many things that I appreciate about James Lowen's work, Sundown Towns, that most of these towns, like Edmonds, are not in Mississippi. Most of these towns are in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Washington State, mm-hmm. Montana, right. Iowa, they're in the north. There is no, ooh, it's really, no, man, can you imagine being you are the nigra in the town <laughs> like what mm. what mm. and for 1953 so this is two years before Emmett Till was lynched mm. just for context how much progress okay. quote unquote you want to think about 1953 that'd be two mm. years before all that that would even be before the Montgomery bus boycott so <laughs> black bill probably mm. could have been lynched too at this time period Maybe they prosecute somebody, maybe they don't, but either way, you are the only Negra in the, what they say, he steps off and gets in the gutter. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. 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 Yes, sir. No, (laughs) ma'am. Absolutely. And again, the same context. Did you get any messages about racism? All of this is the messaging on racism. Mm -hmm. Negro steps mm-hmm. in the gutter, ma'am, ma'am, sir, ma'am, ma'am. He knew his place. They don't even have names. Mm-hmm. He didn't say Mr. Johnson, right. Mrs. Taylor. All of this is the, does, we'll put it this way. Does your grandmother, does she sound like she is ignorant about what racism, white supremacy is and how it works? No. No. In hindsight, No. The, did she describe? Did, well, I guess been back up. Did you get to see pictures of Black Bill, or is this just her description? No. Okay. okay. No, this was my mom's description. I mean, I, obviously, it, it's um, you know the, her overall description of him. Yeah, it was 
was that he was dark, you know, very dark skinned and um, the, the general build and, you know, at least um, as I'm asking her to try to describe him um, so that I could kind of try to paint a picture of what he looked like, uh, whether I overdid it or not. Hmm. Did she get into all the physicality, his broad shoulders and stock? Did she... Well, I asked if, if I remember correctly, I probably asked her like what kind of stature was he and, and, Stocky was the word she used. Um, I was called Stocky growing up, um, was a nicer term than chubby. <laughs> so, um, you know, she, I know she used the word Stocky. That's something that she said many times before, but yeah. Mm, fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, I don't, you, you give an anecdote, I guess they, they have a, a tavern uh, in Everett, Sometimes the white people allow Black Bill to come in. Sometimes they don't. He kind of, I guess, knows the code. He walks in. He gives a look, and he. <laughs> they wave. I'm sorry. I'm. Woo! It's a lot to, lot to process. They wave him in sometimes. Sometimes they don't. And ah, I got him. <laughs> and so he he knows his place. He scurries away. And you point out that your uh, great grandfather uh this is uh lewis dandino uh he's i don't even know what you call it he at least talks to we'll have a beer with uh black bill and you include the anecdote where they go uh, hey louis another man piped up why don't you move on over here leave the spook in the corner bill turned his body away from the men and faced the bar to let his friends leave if they chose Lewis tipped the neck of the bottle down from his lips and swallowed. Why don't you go straight to hell, he suggested. I don't need you telling me who to drink with. Fine by me, the man answered back. If you want to drink with a nigra, that's your business. Ray turned and faced the man. Stick it up your ass, he snapped. This son of a bitch, talking about Black Bill, puts out more in a day's work than you do in a week. The two men stood locked in momentary standoff until Lewis spoke up. Just leave him alone, he said. He ain't hurting no one being here. The man finally stepped back and waved off the group. Oh, I'm just fooling with you, Louie, he said. Come on, I'll buy him a beer. Hell, I'll buy you all a beer. Beer makes everything better. They did say that the mob was in a hangover. Uh, after Anyway. Uh, it's Rainier beer. We're in Washington State when all this it's Rainier beer right on for local breweries. Um, you, oh, let me get that other. As we thought now of this story, my mother and I were plagued with burning questions whether grandfather, sorry, whether her grandfather sat in that bar with Black Bill defending him against his friends. Did he think of those three men hanging by their necks? Did he feel sorry? In his stoic silence about the lynchings 30 years past, in his defense of a friend, <sighs> did she say Black Bill was uh, your great-granddad's friend? That, that's how she describes it. And, and, so, uh, and I think as I'm uh, you know, listening to the discussion of the story, again, a lot of this was just me talking with my mom um, and having her process um, because, you know, it's, she's the one that was really having the most difficulty about this story and because you know, this, her grandfather was someone she loved very much. And so I think, you know, when we talked about like her experiences and, in, in, you know, this story about Bill that came up again, I think for her that 
she was kind of really wanting to hang on to that as some some example of how perhaps her grandfather wasn't the monster that he was in 1920. And um, so really, honestly, a lot of that narrative is really what came from her um, and, and her, her efforts to kind of process that. But in her eyes, she saw him as, as her grandfather's friend. Um, that he'd come over to their house sometimes for dinner and, and all of that. So um, whether or not he truly was, I don't know, but that was her perception. Mm. <laughs> this, this this sounds painfully close to I'm not a racist. I've got a black mm. friend who lives in a mm. shack by the railroad track and we get a beer together from time to time if they allow yeah. negras in the bar. Sometimes they don't and mm-hmm. yeah, then I drink by myself. <laughs> I drink with the other one. I mean, it sounds real close. It might be in, you can tell me if I'm being goofy, but it does sound real close to me too. I got a negro friend, the only black person in town, mm-hmm. mind you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, you know, I don't know if, you know, if, if the relationship was genuine or if it was a way to kind of assuage his guilt or paint himself as someone that he didn't want to, you know, appear to be. Um, I have no idea what the motivation, you know, with uh, what his relationship was with, with Bill and where it came from or why. Mm. This is another illustration that I point out, uh, underline, highlight. I cannot stress this enough. If you are white, you cannot be ignorant about white supremacy racism other individuals classified as white will let you know when you are wrong illustration right there we've heard this from other white people too but I mean Don't think you're going to just hire all the black people at the bank all of a sudden and not have other white people coming to excuse me. Uh, who hired Leroy and Jamal and Donita? Was that you? <laughs> this does not, this does not, this does not work that way at all. They're all out of here tomorrow. <laughs> you might be out of here too. Cause it does not work that way. Mm-hmm. Is this, am I misreading? Cause that's what this sounds like. Other white people will let you know. These are the rules, man. We don't drink with negras. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, it makes it, it makes sense um, that you're, you know, how you're how you're hearing that. Absolutely. Hmm. Let's see. I'll nab. I don't need it, but I'm gonna make sure I get the caller with their question in. Our caller who dialed in two two six two 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 six two 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 six two last four digits. Did you have a question? For our guest, the author of The Lyncher in Me, fellow Pacific Northwesterner, Mr. Warren Reed, 2262. Did you have a question? Yes, sir. Thank you for taking my call, Gus. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Reed, for coming on and speaking with us. Um, I have a question. You said your father served time for the lynching. Is that correct? Uh, my great-grandfather served time for, for he, the charge he was... Uh, he was convicted of was inciting a riot, and he he, he received um, uh, like a four year four year sentence and just about a year and a half. 
Okay. All right. Thank you for clearing up for me. Uh, mm-hmm. Quickly, do you think that was um, accurate or do you think that was adequate for what was done? The time, sir? Um, honestly, no. I, um, you know, it, 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 uh, reading through the court documents and, um, uh, the testimony and all of that, um, you know, it doesn't place, you know, the, the testimony doesn't place him at the lynching. That doesn't mean he wasn't there. I don't necessarily believe that he wasn't more directly involved, um, uh, in, than just bringing people down to the jail. Um, I don't, I don't know that for certain, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, three men were killed and I, and honestly think he, he and um, other people should have served more time. Okay. What do you think would be adequate amount of time served for lynching? Well, if you're, I mean, if you are uh, instrumental in, in a lynching, you're murdering someone. And, um, you know, I honestly, for the most part, I think people get life. Um, you take someone's life, you give your life. I don't mean by uh, death penalty, but I mean um, you lose your freedoms. Okay. All right. Um, I had a question. Um, on January 6, 2021, when at the um, Capitol um, insurrection, uh, as a gay white man, if you were there at the time of that insurrection, would you be in fear of being lynched? Um, no, not at all. Yeah, no, I, I honestly, like, I don't, um, you know, as, as, as Gus and I talked about earlier, um, you know, I understand that, you know, the, the initial comparison is a false comparison. Um, I don't walk around in life being afraid of, of being lynched and, um, you know, and that's not something that I want people to think that I think, no. Okay. Um, my final question is, given what's been discussed here on the program, would you consider revising that part um, about the book, about comparing um, the uh, lynchings to black who being lynched? That, you know, that's an excellent question. I have said many times um and I and I don't want to I don't want to come off as making excuses for anything that I said in the book. Um, when I was writing when I was writing that and processing what I was learning about the lynching, processing uh, my own baggage in my family, um, there's a lot of stuff in there that that's indicative of what I was going through emotionally at that time. And as I was pro- as I was putting it all together, um, it was my first book. Um, I, uh, I I I stand behind the overall message about. Um, how important it is to embrace one's history or our collective histories um, that we can't um, do good without understanding the bad of our past. And so I stand by that. Um, there, there are passages in there, as I've said a couple of times in, during this interview, um, that are cringeworthy to me. Um, I think I was trying to be a writer. I was, I was trying to be deep and there were things that, come off as clunky. So I would love to have the opportunity to go through and actually revise the whole book um, and, um, and be more clear. And also I, I, I do feel like I've, I've, I've done a lot on this journey since then um, and understand things differently than I did at the time. Um, so I wouldn't want necessarily this book to be the benchmark of 
exactly who I am or what I have to say about racism. Um, it's kind of what I was processing at the time. So long story uh, short or short story long, I would um, definitely consider revising the wording and in, uh, in what you're referencing, sure. Okay. And I'll just quickly say, if you do consider revising uh, the book, I would suggest you credit uh, the context of white supremacy as a reason for revising. But thank you guys for taking my call. I'll mute my line. Much obliged. Good, sir. Always a plug for the cows. Uh, our caller, Lauren, did you have a question? Also in the Pacific Northwest, did you have a question for Mr. Warren Reed. Yes, sir. I do have a question. Um, earlier, when the intended audience of the book was discussed, you used the terms generational trauma and epigenetics, and you posed the question, what happens in the family if you bury things and don't talk about it? Um, question one, what did your family not talk to you about when you were growing up? Um. Oh, gosh. Um, my mother actually shared a lot of information about her um, her father's alcoholism and her grandfather's alcoholism. And so for me, understanding that growing up helped me um, sort of navigate my own way around alcohol and, and um, things like that. So it was important for her to be able to talk openly about that. Um, the things that weren't talked about... Um, you know, I obviously this story, but I mean, granted, my mother didn't know anything about it. Her father knew about it, obviously. Um, her grandfather knew. We don't know if, if her mother knew about it. Um, but that certainly wasn't talked about at all. Um, and so she grew up never really understanding, you know, and again, this is all speculation. You know, her, her father and her grandfather had a, had a really difficult relationship, very confrontational They'd, they'd get drunk, they'd fight. Um, she always just thought, you know, that my grandfather was angry because he had to live in an orphanage for a time when his father was gone. My mom thinking that he was gone working in logging camps when he was probably actually in jail. Um, so she never really understood what was going on between them, and, and I think... Um, you know, if, if maybe if she'd understood more, that might have been different. I don't know. I think that's a pretty heavy thing for a kid to be able to process if she knew about the lynching. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, that it should should have remained secret. Um, you know, and I think I don't. You know, I like with my own father. I think um, I talk about in the book about the reason for our estrangement about him being abusive growing up and. Um, I wish I knew why he was the kind of person that he was. Um, I don't know. It wouldn't change anything. It just might make me understand him a little better. Um, and I think that that understanding um, of the people before you helps you understand yourself better. Okay. Um, do you think you suffered some sort of generational trauma from racism? Um, that's a good question. And I think, I mean, we all, Tom, I know oh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I do believe that I have been affected by, uh, the generational racism, um, as a white male, as, um, a person in my family. Um, traumatized by that? I don't know. Trauma is a heavy word, and I don't know that I can claim being traumatized by, 
um, by that. I I feel like I experienced trauma in other ways, um, physical abuse and things like that growing up. But um, but I don't know that I would use the word trauma um, around racism because I'm not a, I'm I've not been victimized by it as a white male. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. Um, can you give us some more examples of things that you understand about racism that you didn't understand 30 years ago? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think just even referencing um, my grandmother, you know, that who I had always put up on a pedestal. And I think that I always viewed racism as mean-spirited, um, um, violent, um, you know, um, the, again, I, I keep, my mind keeps going back to like in the heat of the night or things like that where it's like very, you know, clear examples of a white person calling a black man boy and those kinds of things. And I didn't um, understand then the more passive racism of, um, like even mentioning my grandmother, you know, referencing Mammy and how she sort of held her dear, and it was a very, when you look back now, and it's like a very stereotypical um, relationship where, you know, this woman was there as, as an employee, as a servant, and probably didn't see her family very much and was just sort of expected to be there. And, you know, and yes, my grandmother remembers her as this motherly type of figure, but, um, you know, how convenient it is for her to imagine that, that this woman saw her as a surrogate daughter, I don't, I don't believe that that would have been the case. Um, but, you know, 30 years ago, I, I, I saw that and I heard that story and thought that was very sweet. It's like, um, as a child watching Song of the South and thinking how genteel and wonderful that was and looking back at it now and how horrifying it is. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I understand racism as better now as understanding the context of it, the institutionalization of it, um, um, again, and again, some of the passive or subtleties of it that um, a lot of people don't acknowledge. Okay, and my last question, sir, have you ever practiced racism? Oh, I'm sure that I have. I know that I have. Um, I, um, you know, I, I talk about, uh, you know, when um, you know, the first place that uh, my, my my husband and I bought in the central area of Seattle and we're feeding right into the the gentrification of the neighborhood and, and there's an element of racism in that. And um just my under my realizing a tightness in my stomach when I would walk at night past uh, a, a a black man. And it's like realizing I'm having this physical reaction for no reason other than the fact that I have inherent racism in me. And so that was uncomfortable for me to realize that. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the way that a white person reacts or the judgments they make uh, for someone that is really truly just based on the race, that's racism. And um, you can't say that you're not, uh, that you're not espousing, that you're not doing it just because you're not doing something violent and you're not acting in a very obstructive way. Much obliged, Lauren. Uh, let's see, I'm going to get 
or actually before I get our caller one January 6th it's well documented there are a number of black enforcement officers many of whom testified before Congress that they were called a negra on January 6 2021 and in fact there is a black enforcement officer defended members of Congress on that day he said those white insurrectionists told him put down that gun we'll show you what we do to a negra I didn't hear any reports of faggot put that gun down we'll show you not one it was a whole lot of black people in fact there were even black journalists who said they felt very unsafe watching all of this that e I'm a big black dude. What are they going to do to me? Any hoodles. They did have a gallo. January 6th. <laughs> they had a gallo. I had seen the pictures. Any hoodles. Uh, our caller 9029. 9029. Did you have a question for Mr. Reed? Uh, yes. Greetings, guests, friends, callers, uh, listeners. Um, Dr. Reed, thank you for um, attending today. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you in, in all of this, has it ever occurred to you what it would take to solve the problem of racism? Oh. <laughs> um, uh, I don't even, I can't, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Um, it's so deeply embedded in our society. Um, I, I don't even have a solution. I mean, you know, I can talk as a teacher about educating kids and all of that, but one of the things I found is that kids always know the right answers to the questions you're asking, and it doesn't always show up in the practice um, of what you're teaching them. And so, um, I wish I had I wish I had the magic words um, on how to make it all go away, other than the fact that we have to talk about it and we have to hold one another accountable. Um, for it and um yeah i mean that's about all i can say on it i wish i i wish i could say more it's all right um that was a lot itself um it's, it's um something to consider do you see more action taken by uh people that classify themselves as white trying to solve the issue or have you seen uh, a recoil back so so to speak um, I, when you, when you say recoil back, you mean like a, like losing ground on any progress that we've made or, um, yeah, I mean, mean, if you could say, if, if, if you're saying that we've made progress, yes, like if that's what you're saying. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I don't know. I mean, I, it sure, it sure didn't help to have you know, the leader of our country some years ago, um, you know, be very openly racist and basically give license to, you know, other people to do the same. Um, and then you validate that kind of behavior. But um, I don't, you know, I don't think it's the white people that are uh, standing up and and making big strides to end racism. I think that there are some who, who do that, but then you get in, but I hesitate to even really talk about that because it gets into that whole white savior uh, aspect. I feel like um, most of the ground are really coming from 
um, black people who are who aren't going to accept anything less than that. And I think that that's you know as honestly as uncomfortable it is for me at times, even during this interview, I appreciate that Gus holds me accountable for the words that I put down on, on paper. And I think that's where the learning comes from. And that's where the responsibility comes from. Um, you know, I'm okay with being in an uncomfortable spot and talking about, um, about what I said or what I believe. Understood. And, and I appreciate that. I have one more question. Do we have time for one more Gus? Proceed. Um, yeah, this, this last thing, Doctor Reed, is um, the the way the way that things have transpired within our society as of late. Are you leaning to things? Well, I guess I. You know what? Uh, I think you already kind of answered that. I'll I'll mute my line. Thank you. Thank you. Much obliged. I'll pause right there. One, I want to make sure I get in. We just had author. Professor Dorothy Roberts here in Washington State. She talked about racism in the child welfare system. You included in the book, you are a white man, classified gay white man, and you adopted your son at 18 months. Man, Dorothy Roberts, she has a passage in her book, which is titled her second book, Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, where she writes, all of the literature advocating the elimination of racial considerations in child placements focuses on making it easier for white people to adopt black children. For example, a leading book on the subject states that in the case of transracial adoption, the children are non-white and the adoptive parents are white. Transracial adoption advocates don't mention the possibility of blacks adopting white children, nor did they acknowledge most race matching in adoption involves matching white adoptive parents with white children. Child welfare agencies routinely allow whites to choose the white foster children they prefer. Stanford law professor Richard Banks argues that it is this facilitation of whites preferences for white children not barriers to transracial adoption that is mainly responsible for low black adoption rates. White people's demand for white children isn't seen as a racist claim. Whereas the position that black children belong with black adoptive parents is. Although the end of race matching was defended as serving the interests of black foster children, it has helped to create a system that protects the rights of white adults to have access to the children of their choice. Page 167, Dorothy Roberts, Shattered Bonds, who was just here in Seattle right before the, or it was as it was the day the snow was coming down. We were sitting there like, look at that, the snow. Shut up, Dorothy Roberts, it's snowing, it's snowing. You, as an adoptive white parent, what do you think of that? Because that could be another way that you are able to exercise white power, practice racism, white supremacy, to make the social child welfare system work for you to have access to your child, to a child of your choice, easily. What do you think? Um, 
Well, I, I can say that wasn't my experience. We, my husband and I actually have three adopted children now, and uh, our other two were foster boys who were local, and they are all white. That, that wasn't an indie, that wasn't a uh, a must that we had in it. Um, you know, my experience actually, um, you know, we had some real challenges because we were a gay couple, um, and a lot of people really not wanting to place kids. We didn't do a private adoption where we had, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I, I would say that I, that that was not my experience. I mean, obviously there's a certain level of privilege. I'm sure that I experienced, um, that, uh, I might not otherwise have, but, um, it was actually a pretty difficult process for, for me to, to go through it. It was, you, you're telling us if I'm hearing correctly, it was a difficult process because of your sexual orientation, you being gay. Yeah. I mean, that was the sense we had, um, you know, as, as far as, um, certainly even like working with the foster system, um, we, you know, because we had our younger, you know, our younger son, um, you know, there were certain issues we didn't want. Like we didn't, we, we didn't want kids who came from a very violent household because uh, if they if they had violent tend- tendencies because we had a child at home already. Um, and the referrals that we got over and over again were very significant needs of kids, um, and. Um, that we just didn't feel prepared to be able to bring into the home. Um, and um, we would ask about very specific cases and we're told, no, that child's not available. And then we would find out actually they were. So there were certainly times that we, we experienced what felt like homophobia around um, the adoption process. But um, again, it was just a gut feeling. You know, there wasn't anything blatant where someone told us that they didn't want to place the child with us because of that. Hmm. As a black male privileged, I can certainly appreciate, you know, white supremacy racism is practiced frequently where no one has called you a nigra or lynched you per se, but it still seems like the white supremacy racism is there. Uh, but man, you got three children. I mean, I certainly, like I said, I can appreciate if it might have been more difficult. Do, do, let's put it this way. Do you think it would have been? Do you think it would have been a quicker process, meaning from the time that you filled out the paperwork and, you know, initiated the process of the adoption? Do you think it would have been taken a smaller amount of time if there were no, as you called it, homophobia, if you were uh, what they call straight white man? Um, I think that that possibly could have happened. I mean, we've met, I, you know, when you go through a process like this, a lot of times you um, what we did early on is we um, we met with other families of, of adopted kids, um, other families who did the foster adopt program, and their experiences were were often different than ours. Mm-hmm. When I say they, I'm meaning um, straight uh, white uh, couple. Hmm. Okay, there certainly is a hierarchy in the system of white supremacy racism. I certainly think you you said privilege. I say white power. I think you were able to access, mm-hmm. utilize your white power, even as a gay white man. You are certainly in a much better position than a non-white person, straight, gay, sure. LGBTQ, blah, 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 all that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I have to pause on ponder on that. Got to get back to Donita. That oh my gosh, chapter twenty. One of the most yeah, important. And, Go ahead, sir. Yeah, and, and 
I'm gonna I'm gonna need to go soon because I'm actually fading. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I, well, I, I I only a couple hours sleep, but I'm happy to talk about Donita because that that's a okay. You know, that's a challenging chapter for sure. Man, that's one of the most important in the book. Um, so this is chapter twenty, just for context for listeners. Uh, so it's a tad over halfway point. He writes this is the very beginning of the chapter. I've been afraid of black girls until seventh grade in a town that doesn't have a lot of black girls or black boys. It wasn't like I'd known many, to be honest. In my old neighborhood of Heritage West North, the only persons of color I'd ever seen were Japanese women who'd lived behind us with her Caucasian husband and their children, and Mrs. Barnell, the Vietnamese woman down the street, brought to the United States when her husband, Steve, came home from the war, with the exception... Was he white? Was Steve a white person? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, with the exception of a couple of my mother's social service clients, I couldn't say that I'd ever known a black girl. That is crazy. Black girls run fast. My sister Karen would say this after every track meet. I hate running with black girls. They're always too fast. It's not fair. There's our word. So the one thing I knew about black girls was that I could never outrun one. When I met Donita. The first week of junior high, I hadn't been afraid of her. Like me, she played violin, and just like me, she'd been saddled with the second violin parts. No matter, we made jokes about the first violinists behind their backs and shot dirty looks to the teacher behind hers. But on the day that I made a joke at her expense, a slight comment about her... Oh, we we just heard the racist joke about the... I can't do it. I can't do it. Oh, I'm sorry. I've lost my composure more times than I normally do. We had like a lot of racist jokes today and I've had a lot of caffeine. Get it together. But he did give us the, oh, I'm so glad I got that. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. The racist joke we got was about black hair. Oh, okay. Let me get it together, guys. I'm sorry. Okay. Now, do I say in there exactly what I said to her? No, 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 you don't. Okay, you don't. well, I can I can tell you what I oh, said. Oh, that's here. Yes, sir. That's here. It was so all it was is she and I understand this now. She had come to school, and her hair. I think she came in the rain. Her hair was flat, and it was, and she used to have it kind of combed up, and it was and it was flat. And I thought, in my stupidity, I thought she'd done it on purpose. And so she was not, she was not in a good mood and the teacher asked her and she didn't answer. And I said, um, oh, she just doesn't want anyone to notice her new hairdo. And I honestly, and I seriously thought that she had done it on purpose and she was really pissed that I made that comment. And so that's where the rest of this unfolds. (laughs) That's hilarious. Woo. Okay. Thank you for for adding that because you didn't put that detail in there. I would, yeah, I'm no. always a fan of big details. Okay, so you thought, uh, or I guess you do give a little of it. I thought she got you don't give all the extra about the rain and stuff, but okay. I thought she got okay. a new hairdo. She'd actually not had time to style it before school. All the wrath that could be pent up in an adolescent girl was unleashed on me slowly in regular doses throughout the year. Darnita would terrorize and pound me every chance she got. It started as retaliation from my comment that morning concerning me in the instrument room. She stared me down, a cobra waiting to strike. You can't just up and say that to me. She commanded her massive arms, gestured dramatically from her sleeve sh- sleeveless shirt, her head bobbing 
back and forth to punctuate the seriousness of her words. For final exclamation point, she slapped me so hard across the face that my ears rang. The satisfaction of having put me in my place was a high this girl could not and would not let go of. Day after day for the next eight months, I was to be her mouse, a timid, chubby, white boy mouse from the South End cul-de-sacs, and she the stalking cat, friendly and purring one moment, hissing and lashing out the next. Skipping one paragraph, I fantasized about fighting back, slamming my fist into her face, and watching the bright red blood pour from her red, dark, flat nose. I imagined grabbing her stiff hair, the hair again, and shoving her body into the bricks. I wanted to do it so badly, but as much as I now hated black girls (laughs) at that moment in my life, I was terrified of them. Donita had friends, other black. It couldn't have been that. How many black girl friends did she have? It couldn't have been that. How many did she have? She had two. (laughs) Two You're killing me. You are killing me. You are killing me. Woo. Okay, so she's got her gang of two. And Donita had friends. (laughs) I said I was going to get my composure together. Most of this is Mr. Reed. Most of this is, is his fault. Anyway, uh, other black girls who yelled and laughed and pushed each other and threw wads of paper at other kids walking past them in the hall. She also had an older brother and he was big and walked with a bounce and had huge t- <laughs> the hair again and had huge hair with a red pick sticking out of it. Well, I knew I could get a good lick in with Donita and I might be able to avoid the other girls since I certainly couldn't outrun them. I wasn't so sure about her brother. There was no way I could take <laughs> I stayed scared of black... <laughs> I can't even... I stayed scared of black girls for years. Loud voices, thick arms, laughs and slaps on the legs set my heart lurching and my white skin glistening with sweat. I'd turn and walk the other direction, and if I had no choice, if I was forced to interact with one, I'd choose my words carefully and with purpose. Black black girls anger easily, I thought. Black girls don't put up with white boys' jokes. Black girls hit hard. But, like most intelligent, contemplative people, I grew up and got over my Donita induced racism as evidenced by my oh, genuine convenient statement. Tell me it? about <laughs> it. Oh my are you come on, come on. As evidenced by my genuine ease yeah. with the many people of color I encountered over the ensuing years, I say this with the utmost sincerity and perhaps some wishful thinking because I want to believe that's what I said. We started all this. I like to believe yeah. because I want to believe wholeheartedly <laughs> that I left my negative feelings regarding race at the doors of Port Gardner Middle School. I'm not naive, though. I know it's more complicated than that. I won't stop there. O M White Jesus. <laughs> what, how did we pivot from the 1920 lynching of these black dudes to Oh, I sure do hate these black <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, I, I, you know, I was thinking, again, 
you know, kind of being pushed at the time. Well, you know, what's your, you know, what's your experience with racism? And that's the only, for me at the time, that was the only thing that came to mind of a, of a time that I could articulate very blatant racism based on whatever experience that I'd had. Um, and it's certainly very cartoonish. And that notion of, you know, yeah, I grew up and I kind of opened the door and the light spilled in and I, and I'm not, you know, that way anymore um, is wishful thinking because of course we know that's not true. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, again, for me, that was, that was like one of the first negative experiences and, and how easily I just kind of painted everyone with this broad brush about, um, you know, about, uh, you know, that experience, um, you know, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's really all I can say about it. it I, I totally uh, feel that it's over the top because and I, when I look back, even at a time, I'm not even sure if it was a full eight months. I could have just been like three months or two months. I don't know. I just remember it feeling all consuming and me just like having just a lot of irrational um, feelings about the whole thing. Got a toll on them and got them thrown out of school. Like everyone would have been like, "What? You've been teasing? What? <laughs> God, beautiful yeah. prison to prison to pipeline that's, them so quickly." That's snitching. <laughs> no. Please, we snitch on black. What is Donita induced racism? What? What? What does that mean exactly? Oh, um, you know. Again, I think it's just. You know, you have an experience with one particular person and because you because I didn't have a lot of other experiences with other other black girls, um, that that sort of became the stereotype. It became the the cutout for um, what I was afraid of or what I, you know, what was unreasonably, um, you know, in my mind over that. And um you know, yeah, it certainly, I feel like the fear of someone, of, of black girls with big arm, with muscly arms, um, you know, uh, evaded after a while. But it, it was interesting, again, like when I'm writing this to kind of really think about that and, and try to pull it apart and try to remember my 12-year-old brain and, and how I was handling it then. Are you attracted to Donita? Well, no, because I'm gay. But but she was cool. I mean, we were good. We were friends before that. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then I, I had a class with her in high school, and everything was was fine. And but it was it was just this weird time. I don't. I no. I wasn't attracted to her. Um, but um, I mean, I was scared of her for a period of time. She was tough. She was strong. <laughs> Has she? Did you know if she got to read the book? Or you all, you know, lost touch eons ago, and you know, we we lost we lost touch a long time ago. Yeah, um, I would I, love. I don't know what she's doing now. Jesus, I would love to hear Donita's perspective on this. Like, ooh, wee! He talked about all that yeah. embellishing before. Like, wow, Donita, this he lying on him. <laughs> I would <laughs> love to know what she's what she's up to now. Oh sure. God. Before we uh, let you depart, I'm just because you did mention Pulp Fiction in this here book, 
And I probably wouldn't have said anything about it, but we talked to Dr. Brian Pitts uh, at the end of last year. He is a gay white man uh, at the University UCLA, if memory serves. And we talked to him specifically about white supremacy, racism, and homoeroticism. In fact, he wrote a whole report about his love of going to Brazil because he enjoyed having sexual intercourse with dark-skinned black males like Ooh, Black Bill, which that's what I said. We had a fascinating conversation about all. In fact, one of the black dudes that he had sex with in Brazil came all the way back over here to hang out and have. And anyway, that's another conversation. But that did right. happen. We talked about yeah. this at the end of last year. Anyway, you mentioned Pulp Fiction towards the end of this year book, and even Ving Rhames' character, and I said, "Wow." That's the black male who gets anally raped by the white oh, security officer. Said, "What? <laughs> yes. How interesting. And that's part of the climax of the film that that character would be mentioned. I said, oh, wait a minute. What is, what is the title again? We get it again. It's Delectable Negro, Human Consumption mm. and Homoeroticism in U.S. Slave Culture where that black male gets anally yeah. sodomized in Pulp Fiction. I said, dang, now I got a but reason to if, ask. If there's a connection there, it's totally subconscious, because that's not, when I when I think about being named in that movie, that's not the scene. I mean, that's a famous scene, obviously, an indicative scene, but that's not where my mind is going. He, he's, he's this kind of, I mean, I saw him as this really tough, kind of badass guy, and he like, spoke to the, said things to the point, and there's no nonsense, and that's what I was comparing. Um, this, this gentleman that I was talking to on the phone that reminded me of the way uh, Marcellus spoke in the movie. But that's interesting that you, that you drew that line to that. I'll have to think about that some more. First part of your response, you said that he was bad ass where he gets anally raped. And in, in fact, even you know, uh, we, could, we started all this talking about yeah, those yeah. three black males in Duluth being stripped uh-huh. naked and that yeah. being an aspect of homoeroticism and the mm-hmm. sexualized abuse of black males, black people in general. But that's, that thread is very consistent. Even in a movie okay. that's affiliated with Harvey Weinstein, sexual predator, where that's part mm-hmm. of the, like I said, you can't talk about Pulp Fiction without talking about that scene. That's the climax. Yeah. Okay. Any hoodles, much yeah, obliged. I'll take that. I'm, I'll, I'll process that. I appreciate it. Much obliged. We've chatted it up with uh, Warren Reed. His book again, The Lyncher in Me, A Search for Redemption in the Face of History. Thank you kindly for enduring in spite of the cold weather and burst pipes. Best wishes with getting all of that resolved. Uh, we will, I guess we'll look for the edit and or future reports on racism. But thank you kindly for your time, yeah, Mr. Reed. All right. Thank you, sir. Context of white supremacy. Sorry to folks who dialed in with extra uh, questions. Didn't get your get to your calls. Uh, there was so many different points in the book. Like, man, my mind was just racing with so many different things. Uh We'll take a quick pause. Be right back again. We'll be here every day for the considerable future. Just goes on and on and on. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific.
rolling into 2024, hopefully in a constructive manner. Uh, we'll be right back. Give folks an opportunity. If you did not get to ask your question, you can share what you were going to ask, all that good stuff. Uh, we'll take a short pause. Be right back. Context of white supremacy. Got another term on there, VGQ. What does that mean? Victims Guaranteed Qualification. Now, that keeps you from getting into arguments with other black people, particularly on television, which I get sick of that. Black people shouting. You know, we get into our ghetto thing once we get on television and get wound up, and we start all yelling at once. And the racists sit there smugly and just look. They watch the tennis match, so to speak. Right. And black people are shouting each other down, talking about, you don't know what you're talking about, and so and so and so and so, and we go into our Amos and Andy and Sapphire Act. Okay. BGQ means Victims Guaranteed Qualification. Guaranteed qualification to do what? To give your opinion on anything about race. Don't care what it is. If you're on there with uh, Minister Farrakhan or you on there with uh, Mike Tyson, or you on there with uh, Miss, what's her name, Williams, the lady that had him put in, you know, recommended that he be put in jail, or you on there with uh, anybody. So you don't cut the other black person down. Now, I don't even like that term, brother and sister, even though it's been around for about 30 years. Well, I ain't, I ain't going to talk about the brother here. You know, no. See, we have a reset stage where we can do that. See, we've got to, we've got to crawl before we walk, and, but we don't miss any steps. Don't say you are what you're not. Don't say you feel something that you don't really feel. You don't really feel that he's a brother. I usually use the expression, I don't like anybody in here. I say that to all audiences. I haven't been taught to like anybody. I've been taught to dislike people. I've been taught that. And then they taught to dislike me, so it's just compounded disliking. I haven't even got to love yet. All right. So what we do is minimize conflict, try not to hurt each other. So a certain thing, that's what a code is for. It's a stopgap. It keeps me from saying something against you. You say, well, don't you agree with uh, what this person just said down here on the other end and whatnot? That person has VGQ, Mr. Donahue. I keep using him because he's one of the most prominent uh, TV people. Right. But the main thing you do is try to stay off of a radio program or TV program or even a neighborhood stage program, you might say, where you spend your time shouting back and forth at other black people. Nothing is getting done there. And when it's done on television, a lot of black people just get up from the TV set and go on in the kitchen somewhere. Once that shouting starts, yeah, they get disgusted. Say, you know, they say, oh, here we go. They started off okay, but now they are, you know, they're doing a job on each other, and I don't even want to hear it. So just don't do it. And you cut it off. The cutoff point is that person has victims guaranteed qualification. You spell it out what it means meaning the person can say anything about race that they want to, and I can say anything about it that I want to. You, you are guaranteed that. You earn that as a victim. 
Simply by being a victim. Now, if a white person says something, that's something else. Something else entirely. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. That would be Wednesday, January 17, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White guests only. <clears throat> uh, book club now. See, happened again. Just sometimes I'm indecisive. Catherine Massey Book Club. I get indecisive. I don't listen to listeners. I don't take suggestions, but I just get indecisive in trying to pick. I'll be solidified that, bang, I got my choice. I know we're going to read, and then we'll have a guest on. If this happened before, we'll have a guest on like the day before the book club, and they'll say something. I'm like, ugh, ugh. <laughs> Make me reconsider. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Then I got to go back and reconsider. I was right there to post and share like, all right, bang, this is the next book, and now I got to pause. So I'm not sure what we'll be reading next. I have to take a moment and recalibrate. Either way, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, we'll be here reading something. Nonfiction for sure. Uh, I cannot say enough. Well, I'll get to that later. Uh, Well, yeah, same thing. We said reading, writing, researching, more important than watching television. Absolutely. And even... We had Mr. Reed as a guest on the program today because when I spoke with Jeffrey Ward, his work on racist jokes and even uh, trying to grasp oh, that Mr. Ward, that's the individual where he has one white parent, one non-white parent. He was adopted by a black family and they lied to him about the fact that he had one biological white parent one biological black parent and then they put him up for adoption they lied to him about all that until he was considerably older that's Dr. Ward we talked to him just last month but in his work he references this book I read his work I checked the footnotes and hmm, reading is more important than watching television white man wrote a book about his family members lynching negroes hmm, we should talk to him there you go now, he said he went to a writing workshop. See there? Time and energy. What are you doing? Oh, I'm going learning how to write a book. Maybe you write a book. Maybe you don't. But hey, look what happens. I could be watching TV. I could be going to the gym. I could be going to the library. I could be doing some research. Let me see if they're going to have a workshop at the university. I could be taking a cooking class. Lots of things. How do you use your time and energy, especially under a system of white supremacy racism? The importance of words, trying to pinpoint some of the components that I thought were very important. The importance of words when I asked him if a significant number of white people are greatly, often, sincerely pained about white supremacy racism, he said, I like to think. And even in the text, he said, I like to believe that same sort of verb. Like I said, I like to believe I got a billion dollars in my bank account, maybe three billion. Just because I like like to believe that don't make it so. Be very careful with that sort of verbiage because you could accept that as a response. And well, I didn't ask what you like to believe. What is true? That's what we're trying to get at. Master deceivers, they're so crafty with words. 
I can't say enough about the hair. It came up so many times. I, I had written that down before, but I mean, wow. Wow. That kinky Negro hair. Uh, the the aggrieved white man this program reminded me so much of Paul Kicks that is the white man in Alabama he's married to a black female where he's writing about past acts of white supremacy racism and white terrorism he was writing about Alabama same type of uh, thing where they get to talk about historical acts of racism and then weave their own narrative uh, within all of that and the I, I have been mistreated in some sort of way Paul kicks in that they wouldn't publish his books and books and then people come and fuss at him because he's a white man made with a black female all of these ways that he's been persecuted uh, in some way shape form same type of thing even with our guest talking about Matthew Shepard because you're a gay white man you're going to end up on a barbed wire fence or lynched are you out of your mind or are you just a master deceiver and lying to us that's one white people don't get the benefit of the doubt and I mean that's why I said the editors everybody so many people that would be indicted on that you read this you can't name one white person I didn't say five I didn't say ten I didn't say twenty dozens one white person because you're gay transgender you are going to be lynched we're going to get 10,000 people to and make postcards of it you can't name one come on man that's the master to see that's why I said even all that about Donita even that name like man she couldn't have just been Dawn <laughs> is is Donita, like we can't say Black Dawn. Donita. Black people don't even get names. The names of the black people that are mentioned in this book, other than the lynching victims, are Negra, Black Bill, Mammy, Donita. I don't think I've missed anybody, but those are the names of all of the black people in the book. I think he names a few of the black people that he goes and meets later on in the text when he's going back and trying to get information on Elmer Jackson, one of the lynching uh, trio victims. But yeah, you've got the names. I think of almost all of the black people mentioned in the book. I might have missed maybe one or two towards the end. Maybe, but it's not black bill. Mammy. Negra. Donita. The uh and 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 Donita induced racism. Because of the ne- negative Mr. Fuller recommends not using that term negra negative say negate always eee. Uh, but because of his experience with experiences with Donita, which may have been a lie, embellished as they say, hyperbolic, that is why now you don't want to be behind these black girls. Mm-hmm. He talking about them like they're a terrorist gang. Al Qaeda is roaming every Washington. It's three black girls. 
They're 11 years old. Oh, terrorist cell is here. That was what I meant to bring up. He was leaving at that point because she said that Donita, the negress, terrorized him with her nigger hair. Terrorize? Terrorize. Grandpa, great Louis Dondino, he didn't use the language that he was a domestic terrorist. He and thousands of other whites attacked law enforcement officials, just like on January 6th, and snatched that nigger or those niggers out of greater confinement. That didn't get described as an act of terrorism. But old nigger woman, or nigger child actually, nigger girl, Donita, she terrorized me. That's what I mean. It reminds me a lot of Paul Kicks. And that Paul Fick, like I said, if we hadn't talked to talk to Dr. Brian Pitts, delectable Negro, he talked about the whole industry. White gay men. Sexual consumption of black male. In fact, Dr. Pitts talked about enjoying going to South America because I'm a white man and I can feel desirable. All these black guys want to have sex with me because I'm cool, powerful white man. And I'm kind of a nobody here, you know, just a regular old no-count white dude here. But I go to Brazil and hey. Mention Pulp Fiction. Who watches Pulp Fiction? And oh, I don't even think of Pulp Fiction. They just, you know, they do the dancing and everything. And it's such a cool movie. Now, hey, Pulp Fiction, how does that movie end? It ends with. Bing Ring's character being anally sodomized and then they blow a black male's head off and toss him in the trunk in a junkyard no one who will be missed that's how it ends that's how it ends Samuel L. Jackson is going to be homeless that's how it ends black males do not come out well in Pulp Fiction you can be sodomized you can have your head blown off, we'll throw you in a junkyard and never mention you again, or you can be homeless. Pick. Hurry up, quick. Hurry up, pick. One of the greatest films that has been Harvey Weinstein, too, and it's Harvey Weinstein. See, see, see. He wrote this book well after everything. Come on, come on, come on. White culture, that's why we talked about that film way back then. White culture. Why is this movie so beloved again? What's so great about this film? Oh, Quentin Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, big strapping ving rings. Mm. <laughs> Get out of delectable Negro. Human consumption, homoeroticism, U.S. slave culture. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in, commentary to share. If you did not get to ask your question, you can let us know what you were going to ask. What came to mind as you heard from Warren Reed, not a doctor. Uh, folks who uh, dialed in and you did get to ask your question, if you have thoughts, observations, uh, 2262. Uh, Lauren, I think uh, 0356, you'll have thoughts, observations. Proceed. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot. Oh, while wow, you all are getting it together. Matthew Shepard that right there I, did, I meant to ask too have other black people read this book and did they not say anything and all that about all this at the beginning like nobody else said hey man this is 
I think you're being racist or lying or both or whatever or at minimum it's not accurate did anybody else or they just did they read it they didn't read it nobody's asked you about this before like I for sure meant to ask but I mean man you should read that book on the book of Matt at minimum go back and listen to that episode in the broadcast I thought that was so important immediately they mentioned that lame hate crime bill and they don't even say James Bird James Bird Jr.'s name they will just Matthew crime hate bill that's not a hate crime that is a lame white drug user drug trafficker drug deal gone bad and had, how many times we had to keep bringing that up brought that up with other authors how is that 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 keeps getting peddled he talks about that in the book Mr. Jimenez like dang I tried to say something about that like, hey sh- sh- get out of here get out of here why do we need to perpetuate a lie they could have just said this is a drug deal gone bad and it's terrible people shouldn't be getting killed let's do something about crank they could have said that nah white victims gotta lie and fabricate white victims James Byrd Jr., Jasper, Texas. How about that? That is disgraceful. He would get away with that too because he doesn't say Matthew Shepard's name. He just says being stuck on a barbed wire fence like white Jesus. And that's what they compared him to. That's why the book is called The Book of Math, The Biblical Illusion. They compared him to Jesus. Like, are you serious? Are you serious? Oh, you're just lying. Practicing white supremacy racism. Got it. Master deceivers. That's why, nah, we don't do no fiction. Nonfiction, man. Pay attention to what's happening because they lie and lie and lie and lie and lie. That's courtesy to NPR because they had him and his, as a guest on the program talking about that, but they spent some time talking about that. Like, for reals? You don't think he was a hate crime? Any hoodles. Now, folks who dialed in had to make sure I got that in well. That is so, that took up some of the time at the beginning talking about all that because he starts the book with that. Like, man black males who were lynched and killed probably castrated but we gotta make sure we make time for Matthew Shepard breaking bad man other folks did y'all have commentary observations Pacific Pacific Northwest Lauren yes ma'am um, when you brought up Matthew Shepard, he said that he had read about it and had heard about it. Of, I'm paraphrasing, but being a drug deal gone bad or whatever. So he already knew that when he brought up Matt Shepard as an example of a white person being lynched. Um, uh, in the intro, um, like the, the part where they were talking about the three black males that were lynched, uh, Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, Isaac McGee. It was said they were given back some of the dignity that was taken from them 100 years ago. And I just, I don't understand how, how, how could they have been dignified? Number one, they were lynched. And number two, how could dignity have been given back to them? Um, let me see. Oh, he also said, I can pick and choose who I tell about my minority status. You know, I, I think he was talking about being gay and not being classified as white, you know, which is super interesting. And I, sometimes I really wonder, like, I don't know, like, I, when white people say minority, I actually don't always know if they think there are more white people than non-white people on the planet or 
if they're, you know, practicing deception every single time. It's one of those things I, I ponder. Um, he, you know, he talked about, um, when you, you asked him about shame and, and then, you know, he said it was the opposite of pride and something you'd rather keep hidden. Um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think ashamed is a person who just feels a person who feels guilty after having done something incorrect and embarrassment is just somebody, you know, who, who is concerned about what other people might think about what it is that they did that was incorrect. And it seems maybe I'm misremembering, but it seems like he equated the two shame and embarrassment. And I don't think that they are the same. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that he talked about his grandmother being a very gentle, loving soul, just, you know, uh, a old lady who practiced racism, a gentle, loving soul. That's such an interesting way to think about things. When I asked him the question about what his family didn't talk about, he told me a lot about what his family did talk about. So I, I don't know. I, I just noticed that. And I also noticed that he said, I viewed racism as mean-spirited. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. It, it kind of is in a way. You know, I guess white people don't have to have any feelings about non-white people to practice racism. Um, also, when I asked him if he practiced racism, he talked about having a tightness in his stomach when he walked past a, a black, he said man, but I'll say male. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's practicing racism, you describing your uh, feelings and, and acting like the feelings are fear. And I also noticed when someone asked, uh, I don't know which caller it was, but they asked, you know, has it ever occurred to you what it would take to solve the problem? I, I don't know. You know, he, he gave a pretty typical answer. He doesn't know ideas. He said something about the magic words. But I noticed white people never say it. I guess it's because they never think about it. Just, hey, white people could stop practicing racism today. I'm eh, not going to do that, and I, I guess that's why I didn't say it. And, and that's all I have for now. Nah, he's going to continue to mistreat the negra. Uh, incidentally, he does mention in the book that his white biological father, child rapist, who went to prison. He talks about some of those parallels in the book. I thought the parallel, like, hey, I thought great-granddad lynched the negras because they were rapists and then his actual biological dad is a child rapist and went to jail for molesting his sister like what in the white people do not care about children one more time uh other folks have observations? Yes, uh, may I be heard, sir? Heard both uh, of you. Go ahead, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, greetings, guests. Uh, great to call to listeners. Um, the guest is very interesting uh, this evening. Um, and overall, um, my commentary would be that once again, people who, white people, when they practice racism, they must um, create themselves as a victim. Um, I was checking out his profile picture on Facebook and everything. Um, 
very interesting, very homoerotic. I'm glad that you brought up the Mexican Negro several times. Um, I did not read this text. Your volume is going um, in and out a little bit, sir. I just want to make sure we can hear everything that you're saying. So maybe if you can get a little bit closer to your uh, receiver, speak up. Lots of black self-respect, sir. And maybe maybe you can restart from, I don't know, if you want to start from the beginning, that's fine. Sorry about that. Is that better? Ah, much, much better. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, Bluetooth. Um, I was going to say, um, my overall commentary was that uh, the guest was uh, practicing racism by becoming the victim. Um, talk about such a horrible topic. Um, it's, it's just very incorrect to become the victim. Um, I was checking out his um, Facebook profile picture, um, very homoerotic. Um, I'm glad you brought up Delectable Negro several times. Um my question to him um, would have been, um, considering, you know, that there's so many lynchings, would you classify them as serial killings? Well, I would like to hear, you know, his answer on that, considering that um, his great-grandfather was one. Um, very interesting book title. Um, could that possibly mean that he um, also is a lyncher since he's genetically tied to um, his grandfather? I heard him mention epigenetics. Um, he also reminded me, I forget the name of the guest, but he had adopted uh, a black male son and he was anti-sex as well. Uh, he kind of reminded me of him a little bit um, and the way um, he went to separate himself from what was going on um, and in claiming anti-sex, but at the same time, um, I guess not wanting to be prideful. Um, I'm glad uh, that you asked him again about... Um, um, about white people being um, feeling bad about racism. And at first he said um, what he said, and then he changed his answer after you asked him again. So then he changed it to, you know, well, yeah, you know, white people aren't, you know, considering racism and what they do to black people. Um, Out in there. Thank you, sir, for your time. Much obliged, dear sir. Uh, before we nab our other caller, I think the program that you're referring to is with Kevin Fisher Paulson. Uh, he was a guest on the program. Uh, this would be way back in 2015, 14, 15, 14, 2014, I think. Um, he was a guest on the program. This is a Kevin Fisher Paulson is a white male who adopted a black child, although we have had a number of, or a gay white man who adopted a black child, although Kevin Fisher Paulson specifically is a police officer and a gay white man who adopted a black child. Although we've had a number of white gay guests on the program who have adopted non-white children. Our guest today, he said he adopted all of his children are white, all three of them. I think he said, and his partner's white too, gay, uh, white man. Uh, other, the male caller, thank you for your patience, sir. Yes, sir. Um, I want to uh, start off by uh, talking about what he said about his family. Um, he said they had some issues with drinking, and he also brought up the the fact that he was also physically abused. But then I also um, remember what you just said about his father being convicted of pedophilia in regards to his sister. Um, I would 
uh, think my mind goes to that maybe he was also uh, abused in that way as well by his um, father. Um, he um, also, when you brought up when you brought the fact about the uh, Matthew Shepard being a drug deal gone bad, he tried to I guess re um, or back up that he was lynched by saying, "Oh, uh, this happens all the time. My cousin was also beaten up for being gay." Remember him saying that. Um, when he brought up uh, the situation about the uh, the jokes that he heard, and he couldn't think of you know many that he could relate to us, he said his uh, father or whatever was say it. I want to ask. He said his mother did not uh, say any jokes, but I want to know that did his mother laugh at the jokes? Um, he also talked about uh, the person Donita. And I also thought the same thing. Um, he may have been some kind of attraction to this Donita person, considering how he spoke about, quote-unquote, the, the muscles. And uh, I guess person had muscular, I guess, or something to that effect. Um, he also talked about her hair being stiff. I related that to, like, uh, like an erection-type stiffness. And I also thought of... Uh, the black men of Brazilian soccer, I believe they use the term stiff hair uh, in that one as well, Cabello Crispo. Um, and also when he talked about, I guess, trying to find um, uh, children for adoption, um, and he saying he was being, I guess, discriminated against for being gay, uh, the uh, the children, the Dante Hart family, they came to mind Um uh, I don't think they had issues with um, getting all these black children. And um, also, if he was looking for, I guess, a particular type of child, of um, early grooming, trying to look for a certain type of child to groom. But that's what I got from this. Uh, I think you're taking my call. Uh, I was about to call you a radical, no-count, Negro, privileged male and said, didn't you just say that his dad went to prison for <laughs> like, woo, woo. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. 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 I couldn't let him get out without the train. We just heard Dorothy Roberts, man. We talked about that. She read shattered bonds. I read, I don't know if we read shattered, but I read shattered bonds. Dorothy Roberts didn't say nothing about no. Well, you know, you got to be, a cisgendered white person or you got to be heterosexual you got to be heterosexual she didn't say that Dorothy Roberts said being white they work for you and he said he got three children like if he said he had one you got three what do you mean what do you mean it worked out fine get out of here uh we'll be here tomorrow 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific um that Matthew Shepard too, man, when he, he tried to do that pivot, right, where he said both ways. He said, well, you know, uh, my cousin, you know, he got beat up. You didn't say beat up, man. People get beat up for wearing glasses. Get out of here, man. And Lauren, she said too, he said, he said, well, yes, yes, I think I did start to see that. You could have said that from the beginning, man. You already know that that's a lame lie. See, they want to be, see, we got grieved white people. See, got grieved white people. You know, Matthew Shepard, you know, they, they swole his head. They beat him up because he get, no, man, that is a total lie. And every time, every time someone mentions that Matthew Shepard hate crime bill and all that, even the mention of his name. 
is a deliberate act of white supremacy racism much less you say all that and we don't hear nothing about james bird jr and jasper texas which i've not heard one person say they didn't drag him by that truck and urinate on him not one person they executed two white people behind all of that not ancient history by the way happened in 1998 Matthew Shepard show did catch it bad. They lean on us gay white people hard, don't they? Master deceivers. Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Sobriety would be bad. You see, delectable Negro, human consumption, homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. Such an important book creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throw away offspring to end up in the clutches of a gay white man or gay white woman cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.